name is Sandor Savos. I'm Hungarian. My name is Alice Harford. I'm American. Delighted to meet you, Alice. Did you ever read the Latin poet Arvid on the art of love? Didn't he wind up all by himself, crying his eyes out in some place with a very bad climate? <laughs> but he also had a good time first. A very good time. Are you here with anyone tonight, Alice? With my husband. Oh, how sad. But then I'm sure he's the sort of man who wouldn't mind if we dance. You see that girl over there? Which one? The one who's pretty swishy there, kind of leaning on the uh, buffet table. Oh yeah, fit. She runs that art gallery on uh, Broome Street, I think. Is that her? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh yeah, that's uh, Alice. Yes. Nice. Very nice. Mm. She uh, came around at my job uh, last week uh, looking for some work. I showed her around. Ah, where did you take her? To the storeroom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Look, she's, she's over there. Oh, look, look. She just spotted the doc flirting with Gay and Noor. Look at that. Who's the doc? Her uh, husband, Bill. Bill Harford. Ah, Bill Harford. I know him. He's an asshole. Owes me 20 bucks. Really? At least. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. What, what's he been doing for you? Uh, it's just, you know, it's a typical gambling problem, these guys. Uh. I mean, but in his case, it's scratch-offs. You know, you think he didn't have at least like a classy gambling addiction. Twenty dollars for scratch-offs? No. You're, you're a freaking doctor. And what's he doing with those two girls? She wouldn't know what to do with them if you ask me. Oh, hey, oh, they've just left. They're just going to the other room. Asshole. I hate doctors. <laughs> yeah, good. Leave that loser. Look at Alice. She spotted it. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, she's smart. She knows what's up. Leave that asshole behind. I reckon that fella that she's talking to is trying to chat her up. Hmm. He's doing more than chat her up. Smarmy. Well, that smart man. Yeah, he is. No, smarmy. Look at him. He's all <laughs> yeah. over her. Yeah. What do you expect? Typical Hungarian. Waiter! <laughs> yeah, talk about swishy. <laughs> uh, can we have a... Here you are, sir. Which would you like? Cheers. What, what, what we got there? These are two kinds of holiday cocktails. These ones are snowballs. And these ones are fluffy ducks. Mm. Do you have any men's drinks for men? 
Certainly, sir, there is an open bar in the next room. Ignore him. He's just being rude. Yeah, I can't help it. It's just the drink in me. Or it's the me and the drink. So the snowballs are avocat liqueur with lemonade and a dash of lime juice. And the fluffy ducks are also avocat, but with a spiced red rum. They're really good. Oh, those look good. How's your drink, buddy? Very nice. Yeah. You put enough avocado in it for you? I think so. Mm. Uh, uh, don't go away. I think we might... Uh, you can take the empties away, and I think we'll just have one more each. How's your night going? Oh, very good, sir. <laughs> Whoa! Oh, it easy, man. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Yeah, see, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> I'll be right back. I'm going to just set my bourbon and avocado down right here, Jeevesy. Yep. Oh, man. That's okay. I didn't need that lapel anyway. <laughs> it's quite some shindig, huh? Yeah. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions get on with the show. No time for the chorus, only this bus. It's true to you. Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in once again to Kubrick's Universe. Okay, we've got our year in review show for you coming up, year being 2019, and my friends being with us, James Marinaccio, Mark Lentz, and Stephen Rigg. How's it going, fellas? Pretty good. Super. Excellent. Okay, guys, so um, first things first, back in uh, February of 2019, the 26th to be exact, uh, a, a new book, a really cool new book called The Kubrick Legacy Book was released, and um, our friend James Marinaccio was one of the contributors. Uh, tell us about it, man. It's a small book. It's um, small and expensive. It's more of an academic book. It's uh, an anthology book, I guess you call it, where different people wrote different chapters, mm-hmm. and the editor... Um, Mick, Mick Broderick, who we all know, who did one of these podcasts and wrote, what was the title? Reconstructing? Reconstructing Strangelove, yeah. And he wrote two of the three of the chapters and was the editor. So I had the pleasure of writing one of the chapters, Kubrick Tropes in Advertising. So it's basically an academic book, only 116 pages. Only the first edition is out in hardcover. And it's kind of like forty bucks, kind of expensive. Though the ebook is only like ten bucks. Hopefully, it'll come out um, in paperback at some point, a little more affordable. Mm. But the, some of the topics are well. Any if anyone's googling it, you have to put in that S. It's Kubrick's legacy because when you just Google Google Kubrick legacy, mm-hmm. you get a whole bunch of other stuff. It's hard to find. Oh, okay. Amazon with that S Kubrick's legacy and. Um, Kubrick and Curation is the chapter, The Rise of Dr. Strangelove, Looking Back, Looking Ahead, Kubrick and Music, The Drawing, Dramat, sorry, Dramatizing Kubrick, Room 237 and Other Conspiracies, Kubrick Tropes in Advertising, Kubrick on Screen, 
So those are, those are the different chapters. And it was fun working with Mick. A lot of back and forth. A lot of Mick uh, apologizing for delays, which, which <laughs> didn't, bother me. didn't bother me at all. <laughs> so. uh, now, I know that... Uh tropes and advertising, Kubrick tropes and advertising is of particular interest to you and uh, a, a particular specialty of yours. So obviously it's not surprising that uh, Mick would task you with writing that chapter. Do you remember when he first reached out to you? Yeah, he reached out to Skax. This is going back a couple, a few years. And he just put out a general call for papers uh, the cast, I think, was the only person that paid any attention to it, really. Mm. And um, it was, you know, he gave a list of chapter ideas, and I chose that. And there, some of the ideas that he had didn't even get included. So maybe he has an idea for another book. But I, you know, I've been copying uh, television commercials go back to the eighties, I think, or the, at least I didn't. So I already had a lot of recent. Done, and I did more research on that. Yeah, that's. I had a uh, I had to do a rewrite because the the um, the um, well, if he's the editor, I don't know what you would call the person he was reporting to, the publisher. I guess they just asked for a rewrite because my my first draft was a little listy. It was a little read too much, like mm. listing them all. Mm. I just had to flush it out, which I'm glad they I glad that I'm glad they pushed me on that because I think the second draft was a lot better. Yeah, the end result was oh, it was was worth the extra effort. Go on. I still haven't read that your, your uh, chapter, chapter six. Uh, the only two chapters I've read so far are um, the Rise of Doctor Strangelove, and that was a, a chapter done by Graham Allen, and I read that in preparation for the interview we did with Graham, which we've still got in the archive. Uh, but we interviewed Graham, who did chapter three, and then we also interviewed Mick. Uh, who did Chapter 7, Kubrick on screen. Uh, we've, we've actually put that one out, I think, haven't we? Um, but we are hoping to get through all six uh, contributors, including yourself, James. Um, so that'll be Drew Jeffries, we've done Graham Allen, uh, Christine Gingaro, Manka Perko, James Marinaccio, uh, we've done Mick. So, yeah, so that's kind of the plan to get through the other contributors, because they're all very interesting little topics uh, within the legacy, aren't they, those? Yeah, I, I, I like Christine's a lot. I mean, they were all good, but I remember her uh, her chapter about the music that was really enlightening. And overall, it was a little bit of a thrill seeing your name in a book. Uh, you know, I've written eight or nine magazine articles over over two decades on a freelance basis, but it's cool to your name in a book, even though I'm not on the front of the book. <laughs> but, um, I did, the only other time I had the name in the book was James Harris's, not James Harris, James um, Howard. Yeah. Uh, of title. He wrote a Kubrick book, and I helped him, and, and he put me in the acknowledgement before Arthur C. Clarke. What the hell? Oh, the Kubrick companion is the name. Yes, I've got that, and I've seen your name in there, yes. Um, well, also bears mentioning for our listeners that, you know, with the amount of archival, you know, uh, material that James has amassed over the years, I mean, the the amount of stuff that you've come up with um, from your video, just your years of, you know, running a VCR, and I remember you telling me about all those years when you would do that, 
Um, it, it seems to me that before we get on to the next topic, I just want to mention that that should be archived itself somehow. At some point, it should be saved for posterity because I can't think of one other person probably in the world who uh, put such attention into you know, documenting all that stuff. And it, and it does matter, I think for, you know, Kubrick's legacy, it's important. Um, because yeah, I mean, just for me growing up, I'm, you know, not that much younger than you, James, but seeing all the stuff on TV and, you know, the late seventies, really mostly through the eighties and then the 1990s and beyond, it's just obvious that, uh, you know, his influence far exceeded, you know, just the world of cinema. But anyway, um, I have 112 gigabytes of video clips. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's insane. That's like... I'd love to help uh, James curate this collection. I mean, he's done a great, um, he's done a great job of getting it together already. But if we can ever present this archive in, you know, in the form of a website or something like that, I'd love to get involved with that. But again, James, it's another one of those projects that we want to do, and, and finding the time to do it. We've got a, a long list of projects to do relating to Kubrick. It's it's not it's not for me to say, but I mean, if it's if if it's something that you know, if if I were James, like if I would find a way to just give it to the archives, you know, that officially like have them absorb it because it. I feel like Indiana Jones, like that belongs in a museum. <laughs> it's all I have. A, it's all listed, and I've given it to even. Rod Monday, Felipe Overi, and Simone Vino. And um, you know, we, we call them the three wise men. Yes. And they all have it. Yeah. I'm going to do one more update to it and um, at some point, probably the end of next year. And then saving things now is a lot easier than it used to be. What I do is whenever in SCAS, when somebody shares something interesting, I bookmark the, um, the thread. And every, mm-hmm. every couple of I go through it and I... And I Saves, right? And you know, I used to do it with VHS and, and dubbing the top. <laughs> that was a lot of work. Now everything's electronic. And, yeah, 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 yeah. It's much easier digital. Yeah. Like the other day, I just grabbed a clip of uh, it was a nice, really, really overt shining reference in a recent episode of Family Guy. I mean, it wasn't subtle at all. <laughs> and uh, I said, "Oh, I got to grab that." And there was another, I'm um, watching um, Cash Cab, and they had another Kubrick question. It's, it's, it's easy to grab now. Just as important of actually having these clips that, you know, have been recorded off TV, on VHS, etc. It's just as important to have a, a list, a physical printable list of all these references. Because if anyone ever wants to go and go to the source TV companies to find these clips, you know, they can use your research as a print, as a printed list to just say, look, that that uh, that's uh, an episode of The Simpsons on that date. We know where, we know who holds all those clips. You know, even just even just in in printed form, it's brilliant. Yeah, that uh, fleshing in those details is something that we maybe we'll get to at some point. Right? Yeah, and not just video. I mean, I have audio and I have articles as well, uh, newspaper, magazine articles. I think there's a book in this, James. Maybe. Uh, yeah, book, yeah. Li- list- listing edi- audio sources, just just a reference of everything that's out there in a, in some kind of printed form. The, one of the very first Kubrick books 
uh, was just that, a bibliography of all the other books that had ever been, and articles, yeah, yeah. and citations. That came out in the late 70s. Wow. I don't know where it is now. My professor was mad because they did not list his article. (laughs) 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 Uh, This discussion brings me back to one of my things, which is we are Kubrick's near contemporaries. Maybe we are contemporaries in that we were all alive when he was alive. And this sort of gathering of records and talking to people and doing what we're doing, only we can do it. Yeah. Like it's so much easier for us to do it rather than for some scholar 40 years from now trying to find stuff. Yeah. They may never be able to find it. Archivio, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Kubrick, the website. That's Filippo's. That's Filippo's. He's got, that's a very well organized. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a great resource. So for the printed, that's kind of mainly printed materials, isn't it? Yeah, it's got some video too. Yeah. But he did a lot of interviews when we had him on our podcast. Like that was one of the first things out there. And he just did a lot of, he collected a lot of stuff, but I felt like he also interviewed people. So he was one of the first kind of scholars out there who just interviewed people for the web. He still is doing, he's still doing interviews now. Yeah, like now I feel like he's he's hit his stride. Mm. He's got like this, he's got this, uh, what do you call it, resume? He's yeah. got all the cred. Yeah, and he's been around for for like a good long time. Established nine, established two thousand, year two thousand. Yeah, that's pretty early. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what he he did with his uh, book with uh, Emilio is really you know cements his own legacy because the general reaction it seems across the board was that this was the first real book to show the the human side the the fatherly side the the husband etc uh that's been touched upon before but nothing ever to the extent of uh you know his the book he did with Emilio and i think a lot of that is you know of course it's Emilio's recollections um but it still takes a great writer to have put out and put across what we got in the form of that book and then the documentary. Yeah. And if any of the listeners missed uh, the interview we did with uh, Filippo, it was about uh, episode four, I think. It was, um, yeah. Episode four of Kubrick's Universe. That's well worth a listen. And it really does give you an insight into how, um, without a good writer like Filippo, um, the stories from Emilio wouldn't have been... Um, translated to you know to the to the fans really yeah it did a great job yeah and and on, on just while we're on uh, we're still on the Kubrick legacy can i just point out for people potential people who want to get that book uh i, I believe it's still in its first edition which is a hardback version as jason mentioned that's currently at 36 pound in English sterling, or the ebook is available at seven pound fifty, and that'll be a similar price in in dollars and euros because they're not that much different. Um, and that's uh, available from the R- Routledge. That's R O U T L E D G E Routledge 
dot com. Over to you, Jason. That's cool. It was James who mentioned the addition, though, by the way. Sorry, yes. No worries. Um, well, in the meantime, uh, I guess we'll discuss uh, chronologically the next thing that happened in 2019. Uh, the biggie, of course, was the 20th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's passing on March the 7th. Um, we did do a special show, uh, one I'm particularly proud of. I think that show was a home run. I just, I really like, uh, the way it was done and, uh, everybody's, uh, contributions from, uh, the, the, the friends we have in Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society to you guys. Um, I think it was just really well done, but I wonder if, uh, you know, we were all, uh, alive and kicking when, uh, Stanley passed in, uh, 1999. And I wondered if, uh, you guys had any recollections of, uh, we've gone through the 20th anniversary. It's come and gone. Uh, Mark, do you have any, uh, recollections of how you processed it being the 20th year since we lost them? Well, just listening to that podcast was very emotional for me. And I think it was a milestone in our podcasts as far as what they're all about. They're done by people who love Stanley Kubrick, who are very knowledgeable about Kubrick. And that really shows through. And the more of them that we do, the more I feel like, like Jason, you ask such great questions. And I think it benefits the uh, the final product greatly. But yeah, that was a uh, I can't think of a better way to commemorate Stanley's passing than by doing that podcast. It was great. We got so much great feedback on from it. Yes, we did. That that was episode episode twenty three. I think we put that out. I think we put that out in in March, which was the actual month uh, that that he passed. I guess I would say I discovered Kubrick when I was twenty. And then I had 20 years of him making films, and now I've had 20 years of him being passed away. Mm, that's an yeah. interesting perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I did reading um, Filippo's book, there were a few moments, uh, you know, there, there, there were some parts where I got a little sad, and um, watching Kubrick Remembered, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. extra in the Masterpiece Collection, mm-hmm. Blu-ray set, that there were some moments in that that was... Very touching. Yeah. Mm. Um. Well, that was uh, that was actually the day that I resigned as admin. Uh, I will always remember that. Um. Well, on on the on the seventh of March, I did. Was it? Yeah, right. I, I resigned on the twentieth anniversary. It wasn't planned that way. I just uh, you know you guys knew I had been. Uh, kind of heading in that direction anyway and i was fond of my my final message uh to you guys in the the admin group just to you know stanley kubrick is dead long live stanley kubrick because i really have you know been able to enjoy just getting back to watching his movies and reading about him and you know i want uh to say how much i uh you know really enjoyed it 
during my time and will always be grateful. And I, I can't express enough how much admiration I have for you guys, for anybody who put time in really to doing that. Cause it is a, it is a full-time job and also can be a, a thankless job. Um, and we brought Mark on board, uh, in that same month in March. And I think, you know, he's done an absolutely incredible job. I may not be, uh, posting, as much these days, but I am still there. I'm still present. I'm checking in, and I think everything is just going swimmingly, and that's uh, in no small part due to uh, Mark coming up and uh, helping to steer the ship exceptionally well. And uh, I want to turn it over to Mark and have him share his thoughts about this special job. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I uh, about the job. I wasn't particularly looking forward to it. I thought, well, it's kind of a chore that I can help out with. But I do really like it's you don't have to put very much into it. It's just you have to be there every day. Uh, but I like that. I like that if anything happens in Kubrick's world, this is like I'll find out about it. That's probably the best thing is you won't miss anything that's going to happen. Because it always shows up there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's a sim- for me. It's a simple way to be involved. I couldn't do my New York City meetup this year, so this is a a good substitute for that. Yes, we, we, we've had a few. We've had a few admins over the years. Uh, even even I had a. I think I had a, almost twelve months off. Um, when uh, I just couldn't put any time into it because of things I had going on in, in life. Um, but all four of us here on this call have uh, been admins. James um, was there pretty much from the beginning. Uh, he certainly put his, uh, he certainly earned his straps as well. Um, there's been a few other people. We've had Anthony Adler on board. Who else have we had uh, admins? We've, Anthony, yeah, we haven't had that many. We, you know, we haven't really kind of just brought people in, have we, willy-nilly. We've we've been very selective and very careful over the, uh, what is it, eight years now, 2011? Wow. November 2011. So eight years, isn't it? Yeah. That's a long time. You launched on November 26th. I think you began the group. I was able to, a while ago I went back, all the way back, it took much, much scrolling, but I was able to find your first post, and I think the official anniversary is either November 26th or 27th of 2011, the day you launched the group. But I, I, what, what was the first post? <laughs> you should have bumped it. Yeah, you I know, right? It. You know what? I can do it. I'll still, I'll go back in there. <laughs> I, th- I think I once tried to, to go back, and I just give up hope because it was just taking too much scrolling. <laughs> yeah. But, but but I think now isn't there a little feature on the um, in the settings where you can find when it was set up, which wasn't there at one point? Maybe you can search by year, but you have to put only if you put something. Well, if I put rig, yeah, I wonder what my first post was. It would have been hi. And... <laughs> <laughs> Anybody out there? Yeah. <laughs> so, so James and Stephen, you've been doing it for so long. How? Has the group changed over the years? Um, well, I guess five years. It just used to be so much 
more off-topic stuff and um used to be sillier we we you know we uh decided to take some advice that somebody somebody gave us because we had a, a an epic thread one time about beans do you remember that beans <laughs> remember the bean post go on remind me remember you and sinclair yeah 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 he used to be a, a very very active member and he started this funny thread about taking film titles and changing one word to beans. Oh, yes. He was on a Beans Odyssey. Um, but it wasn't just Kubrick. It would be, you know, Last of the Mohique Beans or whatever. <laughs> and it, just, it went on for them. I mean, they had, there were like 500 or 1,000 people putting jokes. And then somebody, <laughs> somebody with some clout at the time said, don't think that this group is more important than that. <laughs> right. So we kind of we kind of uh, cut down on that. We cut down on the conspiracy groups and um, Greg. I just called you Cooper. Greg uh, started the uh, Stephen started the other group, the sister group for conspiracy discussions. And a lot of people there was there was a period when a lot of people didn't like they didn't like the policing of the and the censoring. Uh, and we just said we don't we don't want to talk about conspiracies here. There we started another group, and there was a lot of off-topic stuff. That's the, those are the big main three differences. Well, the biggest complaint we seem to get is what does this have to do with Stanley Kubrick? That's what I see. What irritates people? Yeah, they get irritated by memes. Uh, memes. What the hell's a mem? Meme. Meme. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's how I always say it in my head. <laughs> but anytime anybody um, kind of questions the relevance of a post, it generally is explained to them that it has got relevance. Because none of us, uh, as admins, let anything in. Right. That, that hasn't that we don't find relevant. And as we are quite well educated on the topic... Um, you know, we're a good filter for that. So I think anyone who does complain about the relevance, I think they always get, I think we explain to them what the relevance is 99% of the time, don't we? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, you know, we have about 20 people, We 15 maybe, we gave auto, auto approval to. Oh, yes, we did right, recently. Right. This year, this year for the first time. Well, the thing with, you know, I, I just want to add this to the, the admin discussion is like so many other situations you find yourself in so-called real life where at my job, for instance, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this too. A lot of this ends up coming down to like babysitting. Like if you have to, if you have to, if you have to explain to somebody why this is relevant to, you know, a discussion about Stanley Kubrick, because as Steven said, you know, we are, you know, just fine filters, great arbiters. We understand the subject matter, hope to say, you know, pretty well. And you end up spending or frankly wasting time like getting back to people on a case-by-case basis. It, it, it's it's just time-consuming and you don't want to have to, you don't want to have to be glad-handing everybody, do you? I mean, that's, that was part of what was frustrating for me. We're also not consistent ourselves. It's very, it's impossible to be. Yeah. So yeah. it's all job, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's what it is. We try to do our best. 
when did you when when I know you uh you you bowed out or maybe you're on hiatus James when can I ask when uh, you did that cuz I was not super active at the time I didn't September. I didn't when was it September yeah yeah I've been I was doing it for 5 years we'll see one other thing I just want to say about adminning is kind of indirect but in adminning I like to be um my style was I, I like to get conversations moving and um, I like to post a lot because I want to give content and keep people engaged. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, SCAS admining, it's, uh, it's a big job. Well, it's, well, is it a big job? It's a big job if you are trying to put content in there and moderate uh, memberships. Um, I think a good thing that James has done is now he's not having to worry too much about uh, approving posts and members. He can concentrate on the, on the, the thing that he's best at, which is finding the, uh, content and putting it in there, which he still is doing. So I think that works well. And as far as, uh, myself and Mark, who are still doing the, uh, post approvals and membership approvals, you can literally spend five minutes a day on that unless the post requires uh the 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 uh post requires a bit more looking into uh like if it's a video or a, an article but uh yeah it's it's not too bad and and we are i think we've got a bit of a reputation with certainly with the people who've been uh, members for a long time that they kind of know what to bother us with as far as posts go, mm. new new new, mem- new members will come up with stuff that we've seen a million times, but we will approve them um, just to let the new members um, feel welcomed. Let's say. And there's a dramatic decrease. I mean, a dramatic decrease in the number of fights starting. The number of people saying you're a moron, you're a, no, you're a moron. That's mm. a stupid opinion. They used to happen all the time, and it's not happening. It's just hardly ever happens anymore not because we're nipping it in the bud or deleting them it's just not happening anymore which i guess is just an organic i i hope to think that's just an organic thing from previous you know admin policies we had and people just people just know what's what to do what not to do i guess hmm i I think people feel i think people who know the group uh, and understand how it works um do feel safe and happy and um and feel like they're in a good place and, and that's that's solely down to the hard work that the admins have been have put in there for the last eight years mm. if anyone's listening to this podcast <laughs> we're talking about the Stanley Cooper's appreciation <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Well, Stephen, is there anything you want to add? I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> it's your group, man. You uh, so no, it's our group. It's I know, our I know, group. I know. I mean, I I I know you're going to say that, and you know, we <laughs> I I love you for it. But I mean, it's a and it's a true gesture. It's wonderful because I know you mean it. But I'm just saying, you did start it, and I'm wondering if you had any uh, thoughts on you know being the admin you've been for so long. Because what you know, James and Mark said is. Is great. I felt like I was just better serving our efforts, our, our collective work that you know we do together uh, in this capacity. I I I love being the host of the show. I love uh, what we do 
Um, and, you know, and I came down to figuring out what was the best way for me to use uh, whatever my skill set might be. I realized it was much better served here. Um, but you've, you know, you've done both and, and very admirably, you know, you are the producer and the, the editor of the show. I can just imagine how much time you're putting in to being an admin because I already know how much time you're putting into doing this as well. So do you ever find it, uh, is taken too much or, uh, is there anything that as the years go by now that we're doing this, you feel like, uh, reflecting on? Well, um, Firstly, I'd, I'd like to say I think you made the right decision, which was putting your spare time. Obviously, you know, you, you've got a, a very busy job. And I think when you made the decision to put your 100% into something, you put it into the podcast. I think that was a very good decision you made. Um, yeah, as soon as the, pod, the podcast uh, started, I realised that I would not be able to put as much time into uh, SCAS. Unfortunately for SCAS, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, James totally stepped up to the mark and not only um, kind of um, filled in for me, well, in fact, that's what he did. He, he totally filled in for me, so he kind of doubled up yeah. what he was already doing at, at that point. Um, so I've kind of uh, put more time and energy into the podcast uh, because I suppose ultimately I feel that the, the podcast is a more uh, something that's out there that that deserves the, the, my attention mm. out of the two uh, as you know we've had many a conversation about facebook being something that might one day just disappear mm. the plug might be pulled and it's gone but we do know that with our personal recordings of these interviews and these shows that i mean even if they disappear off the internet we've still got them in our archive yes. and they can always yes. re- re- they can always reappear right um so I suppose, yeah, I realised um, at the start of the podcast that this is a second thing outside my work that's, uh, that needs some major attention. Uh, but fortunately, um, like I said, well, I mean, uh, everyone who's been involved with looking after SCAS, um, that's just been fantastic. Uh, and sometimes I feel a little bit guilty, you know, that, you know, um, it's something that I started, and but it's also something that I don't put 100% into, which is the uh, the Facebook group. But uh, like I just explained, I think that the um, the podcast deserves the attention that, you know, the, the time that I've got. You know, lim- we've all got limited time to be doing these kind of things. And I feel that I made the decision that I need to put the, the hardcore time into the podcast and as much extra time as I've got into the uh, Facebook group. And I could only do that because of the help of the other admins, you three guys and anyone else who's been involved. I'm running with a few figures now. We have 109,000 total, 79,000 in the mains, and 30,000 in the auxiliaries. And that works out to roughly 7 hours, 15 minutes endurance. We lost Shane Rimmer. Yep. Guest number three. 
Yeah, our, th- our third uh, episode. Was was it the third episode, yeah? Yes, it was, yeah. He was the third guest we had on the show, and how lucky were we yeah. to get him. What a great guy. He was He was so kind to to uh, come on the show and he was he was clearly uh, a a great entertainer he knew how to do a radio show and yeah I'm, i i was sad when when you guys told me he passed yeah so he passed on the 29th of march this year mm-hmm. and I th- and i think we spoke to him probably just before the uh, podcast started which was um late 2017 when we spoke to him stanley was a a marvelous director. He found sort of an under underflow in his pictures, uh, and you became more and more and gradually aware of what he really was up to. Uh, and actually, he was incredibly popular with everybody. The only people he wasn't terrifically popular with was Hollywood, because they never were certain uh, what he was going to do with the picture. But he made so much money for them, uh, they didn't complain very loudly because he was one of the, the top filmmakers of, of, that, of that time. Shane was one of the first kind of, obviously in our early days, before we had any kind of name or presence on the internet, it was a case of trying to find guests who either we knew on Facebook or we knew yeah, personally. Yeah. And th- that wasn't many, but I actually did have Shane Rimmer's... Um, Email address because I met him at a um, kind of a film festival probably about ten years ago, mm. uh, where it was a signing event and he was signing mainly um, photographs of uh, his work on uh, Thunderbirds and the James Bond films. And I turned up at his desk uh, with a, a picture that I took uh, myself uh, from Doctor Strangelove, and because he, he didn't have any Doctor Strangelove items mm. on his desk. But it was busy, mainly with the James Bond and the Thunderbird stuff, the Jerry Anderson stuff, I should say. Mm. And um, and, we, and, we, and he was kind of quite impressed, I think, the fact that I'd turned up with this Doctor Strange love uh, still, because um, mm. I don't think anyone had really acknowledged that as part of his uh, as part of his career. So we we, we kind of got chatting and we swapped email addresses because he wanted me to send the picture, the still. Uh, so we, we we had a few uh, we kind of had, had a bit of an email um, thing going back and forth for a few months. So when it came round to finding some guests who we could approach, I thought, oh, I'll give Shane a, a shout. So some seven or eight years later, I, I re-emailed him, and he remembered me, and uh, that's how we got Shane on the show. That's so cool. Boy, that uh, reminds me. <clears throat> sorry, when we were go, starting go. out. Uh, we were just thinking of getting people who had worked with Kubrick, but as the years have gone by, like so many people are doing new things about Kubrick, and we've been mm. there's plenty to do with just those people who are writing books, holding conferences, uh, creating new art inspired by Kubrick. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think we've got about three hundred uh, potential guests on our hit list. <laughs> you know, the, the names just keep coming, and they're all people, as far as I'm concerned, and I think you guys feel the same. They are all uh, worth talking to, and the hits just keep on coming. <laughs> there used to be a debate whether Kubrick's universe was contracting or expanding, but scientists have found out that it's expanding at an <laughs> ever increasing rate. Nice. <laughs> 
Nice. We have 300 known solar systems within our universe. There is dark Kubrick material that's energizing it. So, well, how about the... uh, Go on. Sorry. I was just going to say, so uh, anyone who's listening, if there is anyone listening to this show, uh, check out episode three uh, for Shane Rimmer. We we had a great interview with him. And uh, rest in peace, Shane. Yeah. Here, here. I I still hear his voice when he said, uh, you know, I, I called him Mr. Rimmer. At the end, and he said, "You know, and it's 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 Shane. You call me Mister Rimmer again, and I'll clobber you." Yeah, <laughs> that just because you know that was like my third interview, and I was yeah not super confident. Uh, and he just made me feel so good. I'll never forget that. It was probably the first, you know, kind of magic moment that happened for me, where I was like, "All right, I, I can do this." Yeah, you know, and it was thanks to him. We met again uh, thirty years after the picture was shot. His wife was a painter, and a very, very good one. And she arranged a meeting near Oxford. The the festival was called Art in Action, and she was showing some pictures, some paintings there. Uh, They were very, very good. Um, And she arranged a meeting between uh, myself and and Kubrick, and he pulled up in a battered old... um, what was it? What was it? Mercedes. Mercedes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He slid out of the driver's seat, came over, hand outstretched, uh, dressed as he always was in a, an open check shirt, jeans, <laughs> and shoes that still needed a buffing. And for a man reputed to uh, have turned almost reclusive. And that was true, unfortunately. He was warm and welcoming and as naturally disarming as as I remember him. So we did have a lovely afternoon, and and, uh, it it didn't go on forever. I think maybe under an hour, and then he was uh, back into his battered old uh, Mercedes. Away he went. Off he went, yeah, amazing. I want to... Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking your time and joining us and answering so many questions. You've been so giving with your time. Stanley is worth it. You know, it was great because uh, he's not going to uh, advertise himself anywhere. So I think it's up to other people to reflect on him and, and uh, you know, uh, talk about his importance as a, as a, a film director. Shane, Mr. Rimmer, thank you so so much for joining us. It's been a real treat, sir. Well, it was it was a, it was good. The questions were were good, and and uh, I think we got the man pretty pretty well showing. You know, he he as I say, he certainly deserved it. He was he was a a good fella. You, you've just been great. So I hope we've done some justice to you by uh, getting to know more about you as well, Mr. Rimmer. You've been wonderful. <laughs> okay. Anytime. And it's Shane. Don't call me Mr. Rimmer. I'll clock you. Duly noted, sir. I w- All right. That's, that's great. Okay, lad. Thanks. Thanks very much. It was, it was a nice, it was a, it was a good, a good, uh, a good exposure of the fellow. Stephen, you were at the, uh, uh, Kubrick season event at BFI South Bank in London back, uh, in the end of May, 
Oh, sorry. The, yeah, no, the uh, yeah, end of May. I think it was a two-month event from the 1st of April sure. to the 31st of May, literally uh, the the whole of April and May. And that was, a, yeah, a Kubrick season that, that, that they put on there. Um, and I, uh, I went down, I think I went down twice during those two months. Um, I went down to see the um, opening of, uh, I think it was the first night of a clock, the Clockwork Orange re-release uh, on the 5th of April. Um, which was great because uh, Malcolm McDowell was in attendance and he um, did kind of a Q&A, well, he did kind of a talk after the uh, film and, and a Q&A. Actually, what happened was we had eight months or nine months of pre-production. And for instance, and I will get back to this question, <laughs> I'm going to meander a little bit, because he said to me, um, well, actually, I said to him, well, Sandy, you know, what am I going to wear? And he goes, I don't know. What do you got? <laughs> well, we're, we're doing a film that's supposed to be futuristic. What have I got? I mean, you know, I live in Nutting Hill Gate, for Christ's sake. I mean, I'm wearing jeans and a T-shirt. I said, well, I've got my uh, cricket gear in the car. And he goes, oh, great. Well, let's see it. So I put it on. And he goes, oh, yeah. And what's this? I said, that's the protector. He said, wear it on the outside. And that's basically how that, that iconic costume uh, came to be. Anyway, so um, I think when there's so much trust on set between an actor and the director that um, you're not afraid to... It's sort of creating an environment where people will just yes. create ideas. I mean, I, look, a lot of the actors didn't feel that at all. Um, Pat McGee was like, um, what the fuck is this guy on about? <laughs> right. And there's no Guinness on the set. Let's <laughs> drink. I said, I'll, I'll try, see if I can do something about that, Pat. I went, Stanley, you know, um, McGee's Irish. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he goes, really? Well, why? I went, that's just the way they work, you know. I don't know. Um, why don't you get some Guinness for him? You know, they, they put it on the prop truck. So they got a, a, a case of Guinness, and I think within three days, of course, it had gone. <laughs> Stanley came to me and he said, well, That was a great idea. Right? <laughs> I said, well, and the, look how great he is in the, in the park. Yeah. And uh, Pat would say to me, Jesus, does this guy know what he's doing? I said, well, why, Pat? He goes, he's had me in the wheelchair. He said, oh, I feel like I'm taking a shit. And he wants more and more. <laughs> well, I don't know. And of course, he, it needed to be that kind of craze. Yeah. That was one of, the one of the few changes, actually, from the book, giving him this strange bodyguard played by Dave Prouse. Yes. Do you remember? Or Julian. Oh, I could good not good. forget that. That was added by, in the script by Stanley. Yes, because Stanley wanted there to be, a, you know, a real heavy kind of bodyguard. And so he picked Dave, I think, from a picture. But it's when Dave, his crowd's own mouth, that's when we ran into a few problems. <laughs> he had a West Country voice like that. <laughs> and a very high voice. And you'll excuse me for saying this, but that's probably why they didn't use his voice for Darth Vader. <laughs> anyway, look. Um, 
and he had a terrific career from it. And playing Darth Vader's, I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? So, uh, but um, also Kubrick wanted him to lift Pat McGee in a wheelchair, and there was nobody strong enough that could do that. And actually, Stanley managed to ruin poor old Dave Prowse's uh, shoulder because he had him holding him for eight hours. Um. And the, the day after that, uh, there was a screening also at the BFI of a documentary called Never Apologize, which was also um, uh, starring McDowell. And uh, the producer of that, um, Mike Kaplan, he, he was there. So there was a Q&A after that. So that was, that was great. Mm. There was uh, various events on and the BFI, the BFI did a fantastic job, as they always do. Um, so that, that was kind of the first thing. And then I went down again, uh, in April, uh, to coincide with the Stanley Kubrick exhibition. And I watched a, a few more films there. I watched, uh, Full Metal Jacket and Dr. Strangelove in 4K. Mm. Stephen, I remember you once saying you had never met anyone from Scots at all. Did, yeah. Didn't you meet up with a couple of Scots people? Well, the year before, um, at the uh, 2001 Space Odyssey uh, screening with the live orchestra, that's when I first met Ian Roscoe, right. Matt, Me- Matt Melia and Nathan Abrams. Right. So I kind of kn- knew them from that. We'd, um, we'd met there. So when I went back to this to the Kubrick season in April and May of this year, I met Matt and uh, Ian again at most of these events, yeah. You will see many, many little details in the exhibition, things that you would normally not even be aware of. Drawings. Over a thousand drawings were prepared, for example, for AI, artificial intelligence. A huge library of books on Napoleon. He was totally fascinated by this hugely successful, charismatic man. Now, you can also see, for example, technical things in the exhibition, lenses. He was so proud of the 50mm f0.7 ultra-fast lens that Zeiss developed for NASA. He used it for Barry Lyndon because he wanted to create the atmosphere of the late 18th century. It meant lighting with candles, and it was very, very difficult to do, but he succeeded. Of course, you know, the big, big one this year was the Stanley Kubrick exhibition finally coming to London. And uh, when it did, it made its way to the Design Museum in London. I know, Stephen, you went and you're going to share some thoughts. We're also going to uh, hear from our old friend Rod Mundy, uh, perhaps Willem Hopman, if uh, we can get him to uh, uh, get on the horn with us, talk about that. Ian Roscow was there. Um, maybe if there's any other people in SCAS, we can reach out to them. But yeah, eyewitness reports with you guys together, I bet you'll remember a lot of details, which will be really interesting for all of us who were deprived. Well, I have a feeling it's going to come to New York sooner than later. Um, we're obviously getting the 2001 exhibit at Museum of the Moving Image. We'll, we'll get back to that. But, um... You know, after London, and I heard the Design Museum was, you know, kind of a smaller version. Uh, the one they had in L.A., 
I had a friend, my friend Alicia Atella was sending me photos from when it was in LA and it was just huge. Uh, they had it at LACMA, uh, at Los Angeles, uh, County Museum of Art. And, uh, you could tell there was just tons of, uh, square footage and people walking around. And from what I understand, the exhibit was kind of crammed into a smaller space at the Design Museum in London. Would you say that was the case, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, obviously I can't compare it with the other presentations of it, but the, 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 I suppose the main telling thing that would make you feel that it was crammed into a smaller space was, obviously, it was, it was set out... Uh, there was a, a main introduction area where you got kind of a, an overview of uh, Stanley's kind of early life and how he got into the into the movies, uh, and then you went through the. I, I guess you went through thirteen different sections for the thirteen feature mm. films. Uh, they weren't in in the, in order, which I think was a good move. Um, uh, you know, we ended. I think the the end of the exhibit, the walkthrough exhibit, was uh, two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as wide shut would have been the end if they'd have done it chronologically. But I think that was a nice way. Um, that seemed to work very organically. Mm-hmm. Did the the, the um, chronology of the pres- of how the films were presented, uh, but because it was an audio visual situation you might be in the um, in the as wide shut section and you could hear Ali Erme shouting mm, yeah f- f- from the uh, full metal jacket section so i suppose at the time <laughs> that didn't bother me because it, it was just like you, you're just taking the whole live live event and you, right. you realize and for me i was familiar with the sound of all the army so it wasn't too distracting um you know at least but, if he was going like you get out of the way i can't see her body i want to <laughs> see that masked woman fully nude you extra, <laughs> you extra boy, get out of the way. That would have worked. Yeah, but I only, I only mentioned the uh, the audio bleed into the different sections because um, I've, I heard a few people um, kind of mention that was a, a downside to the event, which I think goes back to your point of it being in a smaller venue. So um, obviously, sound is going to bleed from section to section. It's kind of like going to a kind of like going to a, a movie theater, a multiplex now, anywhere USA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many hours were you there, Stephen? About four. That's a, a good long time for a museum. Yeah, but but no, it was fantastic. I think they did an absolutely brilliant job. And like I say, I haven't been to any of the other um, the other versions of the. Uh, the traveling exhibition. So to me, it was absolutely fantastic. There was a great uh, entrance thing, which I think was new to this event where, where you kind of walked into a walk towards a big screen. Um, uh, uh, and there were smaller screens at the side. Mm. I'm not, I'm not explaining this very well, but I'm sure you've all seen it on, uh, on clips that have been posted. Uh, no, it, it was brilliant. I thought they did a, a brilliant job. Really did. And they had some uh, new things in there, like the, um, the, uh, the car from a Clockwork Orange, the Durango ninety five, they had that on display, which has never, which has not been on display before. Mm. They also, they also had the, um, the, um, are they called the Dancing Jesus figures from Clockwork Orange? They had those original ones there. Oh wow, um, that's cool. Yeah. So oh, and they, and they also had the big, uh, 
the big rocking white penis. Yeah, of course, of course. Which has not been included before, so I was uh, very excited mm. to uh, be in the presence of that. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have any of the, the cat ladies' cats? I mean, they'd be pretty old by now. No, I can't remember seeing any cat lady things. The Egyptians mummified no. theirs, so, you know, they could have kept them around. Yeah. What about a room on just Kubrick's family life? It was just the movies? Uh, no, there wasn't a, co- uh, um, a room on uh, family life, no. I would imagine they... They, I would imagine they didn't. If they did that, they would. It would have to be like in the in the in the bathroom, because there's a bathroom scene in every Kubrick film. It would ha- his most personal. <laughs> not well, not, not every Kubrick film. I think. I think no, maybe, not, maybe not t- every Kubrick film. Did we, did we, we want we want to work this out. Is it is it maybe ten out of the thirteen? I think so. Yeah, we worked it out. Which is a good a good run, isn't it? Yeah, that? yeah. You know, actually, that could be the best thing out of Doctor Sleep if they. Donate all the sets to uh, the archives. Oh God! They no. could yeah. somehow do that. No, inferior. <laughs> <laughs> they, no, I, tr- I tried. I tried to get my friend Wendy to see if she pick up the phone. I wanted to, if we're going to do a Doctor Sleep segment. I wanted to get her on this call because <laughs> she she is so funny about. It. She's like, oh, you won't even see it. Why are you criticizing it? I'm like, all right, so tell me about it. Well. It starts off like this, and then it gets like that, and then I had a problem with this part, and I'm going to be like, okay, so you're just telling me why I don't need to see it. Just, so this is Wendy. This is Wendy Torrance. Wendy Basile. Yeah, exactly. The no, Wendy Basile. I think that's how she pronounces her last name. She's that gal I mentioned I work with, and you know we're going to get her on the show. She's just she's super cool. You guys, she's one of us. You guys will love her. She's very pop culture savvy, just very down to earth, funny, smart. Uh, you know, loves Kubrick, music, movies, all things uh, pop culture, and um, anyway, um, so all right, guys. Then in May, um, there was a pretty cool scoop, rather a big deal, if you will. Um, after Stephen read uh mixed chapter Kubrick on screen in the book The Kubrick Legacy. We heard about a short film called Dreams That Money Can Buy, in which a young Stanley Kubrick actually appears on screen for a few brief moments. Um, who was it that scooped the story or first brought it to SCAS, James? Do you remember? I think it was Mick Roderick, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, Mick picked it up from speaking to Anthony Fruin, um, Kubrick's uh, assistant, um, when he was researching another book. Can I just interject that if anyone's listening to the podcast, it, they may want to pause it and simultaneously look at it. If you go to YouTube, to Stephen's page, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society YouTube page, you could search. It's, the, the whole title is Stanley Kubrick on screen, 1947, Dreams That Money Can Buy with Mick Broderick. So there's a number of ways you could search for it, or you could find the page first. But it's a five-minute uh, film and is a nice two-paragraph, five-paragraph <laughs> uh, description of it. And, it, you, you know, you can do, read that first and then come back to the podcast or vice versa or do the two at the same time. It might be better. Yeah, well done. Good idea. So, Mark, I want, uh, I, I want to hear what you were uh, going to say about it. Oh, I loved it. It was just an amazing find. And 
to me, it was very eerie to see Stanley and Toba uh, when they were married, but also to have Ruth Zabotka in that same film. Mm. And then the film itself being an art film. I know that Kubrick watched every film that came out, uh, both popular and he would go to uh, MoMA a lot. But I feel like he, one of his quotes, one of his famous quotes is, films are a controlled dream. And that's exactly the premise of this film. I feel like everything that an artist sees, it goes into their unconscious and it comes out again and again over the course of their career. So to me, this was a very interesting film to think about in in light of his later career. Mm. And Stephen was able to get the whole film, find the bits. It's, I think there's about four different cuts. And it's really good quality. It's not some old grainy yeah. like, squint to see him. You really see him. And he's young and he's, he's a handsome man. I mean, look, yeah, look- family is not exactly Cary Grant as the years went by. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> Look at the young, handsome Stanley I know, I know. I thought the same thing. And I was I, when he when he was young like that. I have a few photos that are particular favorites from when he was in that age uh, period. And he just had such cool hair. His hair, his hair just looked awesome. It's almost a shame that he started to thin. You know, before he was even really a middle aged guy, he was kind of thinning. But yeah, you see those pictures. Of him? I showed you that one when there's a there's a photo of him. Uh, it's in the archives book, and it's when he was shooting Fear and Desire, and he's got on a pair of blue jeans, a black belt, a white button-down shirt, and a navy blue blazer, and I'm just like, Jesus, like, that that never will go out of style. That looked cool then, it looked cool on James Dean, it looks cool on people now. And there he is rocking it, <laughs> and you just see him with his camera, and he's got that awesome hair kind of off to one side. <laughs> Well, did anybody notice when, I mean, I just kind of put it out there and let it come and go because it was purely coincidental, but in the background, in one of the shots uh, in Dreams That Money Can Buy, there's a frame, a very close-up of a framed photo or a painting of just a pair of eyes, and they have those deep bags under them like raccoon eyes, almost identical to a close shot of what Kubrick's eyes would look like in later life. And I remember doing a screenshot, cropping it, and then just kind of putting it in Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, like, anybody notice this? And it got a few notices, but it came and went, as I expected. Because, um, again, it wasn't like, oh, there's a conspiracy. They were, you know, there's the Kubrick stare before he ever made a film, you know? <laughs> Weird Al should do a, a, he's got Stanley Kubrick eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> not a bad idea. Well, somebody did Marty Feldman, though. That's already been done. Did you ever hear that parody? He's got Marty Feldman on. Uh, that's genius. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's genius. I ain't got nobody. I ain't got no and no, nobody. I got me. Yeah, check, 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 check. I was just watching Young Frankenstein a couple weeks ago. Oh, my God. He was great. Didn't we? Didn't, what, didn't he do an episode of The Muppet Show, Stephen? Marty Feldman? I'm not sure. I think he was a guest on the Muppet it, Show once. It could well have been. Yeah. It, it was. It was around at that time, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and not for much longer. Didn't he passed in the 80s, like the early. Yeah, 
In the eighties, yeah, I'd say. Um. So anyway, well, we had a another cool thing happen in May, of course, which was the uh, re-release of Doctor Strangelove, but this time in four K in uh, cinemas, and I think it was mostly in the UK. James and Mark, do you remember seeing any news about theaters showing Strange Love in 4K here in the States? No. But Stephen did. You st- and uh, were you able to see it, Stephen? Yeah, well, I think we had just... Had we just interviewed Matt Wells just before the release, uh, and Matt did a short film Correct. that preceded the re-release. Yep. Um, it was called uh, Stanley Kubrick Considers a Bomb. So, so we interviewed uh, Matt Wells, the, 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 the British director. Uh, and shortly after that, I went down, back down to the BFI, which was still part of the, um, the Kubrick season, wasn't it? Because that was April and May. So I went down on the 17th of May. Um, sorry, the, the film was released on the 17th of May. I went down on the 25th um, uh, and I watched... Doctor Strange Love uh, in 4K um, after being obviously tipped off by um, Matt, who'd done the uh, the short film to introduce it, and oh, it was it was brilliant. Um, you know, obviously I'm very familiar with the film, seen it many times at home, but to see it not only in the cinema mm. but to see it as a, a really good print, a really good um, quality release, it was brilliant, and and I found myself laughing at things that I'd, I'd never even found funny before and th- there's a there's a, a quite a strange phenomena about going to th- going to the cinema and uh, experiencing movies with others which you know it, it's been talked about a lot by people um but yeah actually going and and watching a film with an audience is really something to behold mm. Um, and I, and I appreciated the humor in Doctor Strange Love much more by watching this screening, that, uh, uh, you know, on the big screen. Yeah. Well, there, there so were, I suppose that was, that was it. Go yeah, on. real quick, there were a bunch of moments. Uh, Mark was there, uh, with me at the, um, showing of Barry Lyndon with the live orchestra with, uh, Wordless Music Orchestra. And, um, there were moments in Barry Lyndon that, you know, elicited bursts of laughter from over 3,000 people that I'd seen before. Like you said, I watched it at home, but then I was like, oh, yeah, that is really funny. Um, and, and you knew they were already, but, yeah, there's some kind of, like, a validation loop, I think, yeah, that happens. What is it? I, I almost feel like it's uh, an insincere situation uh, i mean the same thing happened when i watched 2001 um uh last year on the big screen with thousands of people in the audience w- when they did the um the live orchestra oh, yeah. and they were th- and, and hal was just like cracking people up and myself <laughs> and i was cra- yeah and i know and i know i weren't just cracking up because i was hearing the man next to me cracking up because i was almost ahead of it right 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 but i've never cracked up at hal at home so it's a really strange phenomenon about, you know, is it funny or are you just kind of nervously laughing because you've got people around you? I don't get it, but I genuinely found Doctor Strangelove and 2001 um, moments that I've never found funny before. Yeah. What what what, what is that? And, and same with Barry Lyndon. You know what's going on there? I don't understand. That yeah, 
There's was it a sellout? The 4K Strange Love. Uh, well, they did quite a few screenings there. Uh, the day that I went, it was in the, the it was in the NFT two, which was a slightly smaller screen, um, and that was a sellout. But I think they, I think they showed it maybe twenty or thirty times during the season. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know if it was a sellout on everyone, but it, it seemed to be well attended uh, every time I went down there. They did all the uh, the Kubrick screenings. Mm. Well, and the opposite effect is I went to a Strange Love with a small crowd and nobody was laughing and it made it seem not funny to me as well. Mm. Yeah. And I was worried that the younger audience, they might not just get this kind of humor. Like, do you, mm. did you have to be terrified of World War Three to really yeah. find it horrifically funny? That's a good point because I was with, uh, well, in fact, all the, all the screenings I went to this year, uh, there was mainly a, a, an older audience, my age and up. Yeah. Mm. It were not to see some young people there appreciated it, um, but it, generally they were older audiences, yeah. Well, when I saw 2001 in 4K last year, um, AMC properly did a 15-minute uh, intermission, and when it happened, you know, the house lights came up and I realized there were about six or seven young people, uh, and they just took out their phones and they were like, what what just happened? <laughs> Is the movie over? Like, and they went to the website to see like the running time of the movie. Is that it? Wait, is it? Is it coming back? Because they brought up the house lights, and it's like now's your chance to go to the restroom, folks. <clears throat> but these kids were like <clears throat> with the default mode. Oh, I'm gonna take out my phone, and it's gonna give me the answer. What's happening right now? Well, I've got to say, I have, I've, I've taken my phone out occasionally in the cinema, not at a Kubrick movie, I might add, but I've taken my phone out a few times to check on the running time and how long I had to endure this, uh, this beast. Like Dr. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> I knew it. How did I know? Dr. Snore. Uh, how about the, uh, Chittickbury Arts Fair? Hey, how about that Chittickbury Arts Fair, Stephen? Back in June 2019, I believe you uh, finally got to uh, rub elbows with Ms. K. And... Yes, uh, that was the first time I uh, went down there. So for the listeners, the Chidikbury Arts Fair is... Uh, children. It's C-H-I-L. You're both dropping the L. Sorry, I'm being obnoxious. No, you, you, you're uh, being ob- obnoxiously wrong. <laughs> you, you don't pronounce the L. <laughs> It's like the, uh, it's silent, even though it's there. It's like, what is that town in Massachusetts? Yes, it's a silent L. Ah. It's Chid- it's, it is Chittickbury, right? Yep. Worcester. Worcester. Worcester, Worcester is, is spelt Wor- Worcester like, Wor- yeah, Wor- Worcester sauce, but they just, <laughs> but they, just <laughs> they call it Worcester. Yeah. Oh, well, Worcestershire, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I am not. I, I apologize. <laughs> apologize unreservedly. Accepted. <laughs> so, Stephen, you were there at uh, the Chittickbury Arts Fair. Tell the listeners how cool that was. That was very cool, Jason. Mm, um, yes, it was at such a cool time. Hmm. Um, 
I haven't had a cool time like that for many years. I don't believe that. Uh, but the, anyway, this year, uh, on the 6th of June, this is an annual event at uh, that is called the Chidikbury Arts Fair, and it is held at the Kubrick Estate in Chidikbury, uh, which is not far out of London. Um, and I went down there this year as a um, as a person who wanted to visit as a you know just a day visitor and um it was yeah it was nice to be there uh, I, I bumped into um Katerina uh Stanley's daughter she uh, had a jewelry making um area uh I also met um Stanley's wife um she cuz she's an artist and she had like a a, a painting area um, and yes, it was good. I bumped into, um, Mick Broderick. He was down there, the author of, uh, Reconstructing Strange Love. Um, so it was a good thing. You may need some new glasses. Yes. Bumping into a lot of people. Who? How, how big was the estate? If you can kind of quantify. I'm trying, I've never seen, I've only seen pictures. Did you, what was your reaction when you, Stepped on the ground, like, wow, this is large, or... Yeah, well, it was a case of I uh, got a taxi from the train station. So from Lon- so I started in London, because I'd been there uh, the night before at the BFI, uh, watching Doctor Strangelove, I think it was. Um, so on the Saturday morning, I uh, jumped on a train in London and went to uh, Chidikborough, and then got a taxi... Uh, to the actual estate, to the arts fair, you know, I said to, I said to the taxi driver, can I, can you take me to the arts fair? And he said, oh yeah, no problem. So I went, went there. So I drove up a long drive, kind of recognised, uh, things that I'd seen on, on a few documentaries, uh, of the estate. Um, now, now the area where the arts fair was, was kind of the, uh, front area of the estate. You know, we weren't in the area where the, where, where the living quarters were, where everyone lived and hung out. Um, but, but we did, uh, what was that bleep? Oh, Jason took a snapshot. I'll edit that. I just out. noticed your Christmas tree in the background. <laughs> oh, I yes, didn't realize the audio was going to happen. Go on. It's very eyes wide shut, isn't it, around here? Uh, so, um, yeah, so the, uh, the art fair itself was kind of in the, in the, an area just before the, um, the the house itself um and yeah it was lovely it was nice um na- i mean i just i just wandered around quite uh, uh i kept myself to myself although i did you know obviously at some point introduce myself to katarina um and she said stephen rig yes you're skaz aren't you i said yeah yeah uh so she she recognized my name so that was uh kind of nice um and and like i said i met um christiane Stanley's wife uh, had a little chat with her, but obviously I didn't want to uh, make a nuisance of myself. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was great. Uh, I spent a couple of hours there, bumped into Anthony Adler um, and uh, Mick Broderick. Mm. Yes, I I didn't uh, I didn't notice uh, Ian there, but he was there, I believe. Okay. And uh, Willem Hotman was also there, but I didn't uh, see him at the time. Were there a lot of dogs and cats and goats? Nope. Didn't see a single dog or cat. How did it feel being there? Was it, you know, did it 
Mm. It felt like I'd kind of got something out of my system a little bit, mm. I think. Uh-huh. You know, if I got the first front door, first thing I'd be like, so, where's the drum kit? <laughs> I would. I wouldn't actually, but I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to ask if I were either a member of the public or a guest. I mean, come on. How cool would that be? I would I'd just go up to Christiana and say, Christian, between you and me, where's the missing 17 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I swear I won't tell anybody. I swear I won't tell anybody. <laughs> and she'd like, she get, she goes over to a bookcase and she pulls one book out and the bookcase like does a complete 180, <laughs> leads to a secret passage. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, that's, th- I mean, real quick that while we're on the drums, the thing is like, there has to be a recording of Stanley playing drums. There has to be. I I don't understand how a guy could have played drums as long as for as many years as he did, and nobody ever set up, uh, you know, a microphone, even if it was not, uh, if there's not a recording of him playing with a jazz band, which we know he did when he was a young man. Um, there has to be like that's one of those things I would, as a personal aside, I would just love to be able to hear that. Because they say he, you know, he could swing. He wasn't just a timekeeper. They said he really understood. And it, you know, again, as a lifelong drummer, I would just that would be for me. That would be like a nice little chunk of gold just to hear it. <laughs> well, guys, and then in July we had uh, a big event, a workshop at the Lorenz Center Leiden in the Netherlands. And um, the event was, uh, I believe, called Stanley Kubrick Life and Legacy. Um, was Will- Willem Hopman was there? And uh, James, do you know anything? Can you add anything about that? Was, um, what do they call them? Symposium, I guess? People who mm, get together mm. and, and the, for a few days? Is that what they call those? Then, mm-hmm. uh, I think this was classed as a workshop. Workshop. And five days in July in the Netherlands, I, me and Stephen got invites. Uh, it was organized by Nathan Ad- Abrams, Michael Broderick. Is Michael? We know Michael. Him as, yeah, it says Michael. Yeah, we know him as Mick. James Fenwick, Kate McQuiston, Eliza Pizzota from Italy, Kate McQuiston from Honolulu. Uh, it says the aim was to ascertain the current state of Kubrick's studies and what the future direction of research looks like, bringing together academics, artists, archivists and scholars to discuss and debate get closer methodologies and approaches to study and interpret, interpret Kubrick's career. Some of the people who went were Richard Daniels, Ian Roscoe, Howie Berry, Rod Monday, Simone Odino, Filippo Alvieri, Willem Hopman, Matt Malia, Robert Coker. And there were, at one point, Filippo um, tweeted or posted a photo of 31 people, and um, but to, he, I, his caption was, look, there are women here, too, which is funny, because there is kind of that perception yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that it's, it's a guy's thing, but um, we had, I looked at one time, there's um, um, statistics on, uh, what's the word, the analytics, they call it, for Facebook, and they could tell the gender, and we had, I think we have 20, like 25% women. In the in the Facebook group, 
And in that photo, there were nine women out of 31, which is 29%. Mm-hmm. So it's, and um, I'm only bringing that up because that was Filippo's point. I was like, look, there are women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two of the five organizers were women. And Filippo pointed out that SCAS was mentioned several times. Yay. And uh, so here's some of the, the uh, topics that they discussed. Feminist approaches, biographical approaches, art historical approaches, archival approaches, the Stanley Kubrick art, Kubrick's correspondences, Kubrick's legacy, marketing and audiences, Kubrick's photography and photojournalism, Kubrick's early works, Kubrick's unmade films. Those were the topics. And I, I know that afterwards, um, you know, one of Simone or people or Rod or one of them was telling us that they mentioned SCAS. You can go to the website. You can see who, who the speakers were. And um, yeah, Nathan did spoke on Kubrick's photography and photojournalism. That I would be really interested in hearing about. Me too. Filippo spoke about Kubrick's unmade film. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. All right. So, do you guys want to talk at all about uh, you know Matthew Modine getting nominated for the president of SAG, AFTRA? Working together is what we performers do. One of the first things we learn when studying for a profession in the arts is to look your partner in the eyes and tell the truth. It seems today that it is more and more difficult to understand who's telling the truth when there are so many lies being told. I know it's much easier to tell the truth than it is to lie. I began my professional acting career as a background performer. Over my career, I've had the extreme honor of working beside thousands of performers, singers and dancers, stunt and background performers, crew members, industry professionals, and some of the greatest filmmakers in the history of our profession. To say I have been blessed to have worked with so many artists would be an understatement. I've told you that I want to mend the divisions that exist within our union. I'm not so naive to think I could do this alone. I want to do this because division creates fear, and fear leads to fearful decision-making. None of us deserve a negotiation committee working from a position of fear. Confidence and courage are essentials for our union's success. Confidence and courage are essentials for every artist who enters into this unpredictable profession. As artists united in cause, we should always look to create and build opportunities for each other. This includes supporting and standing beside our sister unions. In the Membership First platform, we've provided the language necessary to restore and strengthen our union. We're all in this together. If we remember that, and if we all work together, we'll succeed together. Within the institution of our union, we must be vigilant to protect it against the influences of the individuals and studios that employ us. This potential exists. Together, we must never let any outside power influence or endanger our institution or our democratic process. It will be my honor to be in the position to represent you and the future generations of SAG-AFTRA. Our union's future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to those that creatively problem-solve with transparency, wisdom, experience, 
and a little wit. What we know from our union's past, what I have seen over the course of my career, is that we have a powerful yet imperfect union. What our union has achieved gives me hope that together we can make a more perfect union. Lastly, I want to say thank you to everyone who has worked so hard on our campaign. And I want to thank all of you for your endorsements, your encouragement, your donations, and your kindness. These are generosities that I will never forget. My name is Matthew Modine, and I wish all of you the best of luck. So Modine ran for the president of the Screen Actors Guild. It was a really contentious um, nomination election process. He ended up losing to the incumbent, who is Gabriel Carteris, who is known as an actress on Beverly Hills 90210. And um, they were accusing each other of all, all, all variety. I, I Googled it, and I, I thought, because we had this, me and Stephen had this notion there was one controversy about it, but there were loads. They were accusing each other of all sorts of uh, underhanded stuff. Like what? Well, here's one that I, I wrote down. Uh, there was a bit of a controversy in a Q&A session at an event, a Q&A portion of an event, where Matthew Modine said, he said, I'm going to win because I'm the only man running. And supporters of his two rivals leapt on this joke as proof that he's a misogynist. Oh, and boy. A, a tape recording of the joke, however, shows that it got a big laugh and that <clears throat> critics took it out of context. Because of course they did. What happened right after the laughter died down, <clears throat> Modine explained that at that point, there were he was not the only man in the race. There were two other men in the race, but they were not invited to that particular event to participate in that town hall. And they, the organizers didn't uh, invite those other two men because they figured they had no chance to win. So um, Matthew, Matthew said, sorry, I wish, they, I wish they could have had the opportunity to participate in this event. And a whole bunch of people came to his defense and sent out a statement saying, we deplore the politics of personal destruction that has been waged against Modine on social media. And it was signed by a whole bunch of people, including Ellen Barkin, Rosanna Arquette, Danny, Diane Ladd. So, Stephen, you got audio from the London Prop Store two-day auction of uh, original items from 2001, A Space Odyssey, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining that all went on sale. You've got audio that they sent you from that event. Is that correct? That is correct. Oh, that's so cool. We have to hear some of that. Next, a uh, few lots here. From lot three to lot number eight, these are all being sold on behalf of a charity. The profits will go to the Jane Goodall Trust. Jane Goodall Trust is a charity which protects and helps the production of chimpanzees in Tanzania and the Congo. And we have plenty of interest in these immensely rare forms of artwork here. We have got lot number three, and this is a 2001 Space Odyssey limited edition numbered one autograph print of Space Station Lightning Test by Keith Hampshire. And I can start the bidding with me immediately at £600 I have. Straight in at £600. I have £600 with me. Is there any advance at £600? At £600. £700 now. My book bid is out. At £700. £700. £800 now. At £800 it is. At £809. And £900 now. At £900. £1,000 I have. 
at a thousand it is. Is there any advance at a thousand pounds? It's here at a thousand pounds. It's online at a thousand. Any advance in the room at one thousand pounds against you all at one thousand? One thousand once, one thousand twice. Any advance at a thousand pounds? The gavel is up. About to sell it. One thousand. Lot number four. Again, profits going to the uh, Glenn Goodall charity. Space Odyssey limited edition print of the Space Station 5 in Earth's orbit by Robert McCall. And I've got plenty of bids here and I jump straight in at £700 is where I start. £700 is where I start. Seven, eight hundred. I'm out already at eight hundred against you all at eight hundred. Is there any advance at eight hundred pounds? Eight hundred. It is. Is there any advance at eight hundred? Eight hundred. I have. It's here online once. Here online twice. All done then at eight hundred pounds. Gavels raised. Eight hundred. Lot number five. Uh, again, this is the 2001 Space Odyssey limited edition print of Astronauts at Lunar Base by Robert McGall. And limited edition print and interest again starts me straight away at £600 I have. 600 it is at 600 It's here on my book at 6 At 600 against you all at 600 Is there any advance at £600? 600 once. 600 twice. It's going on my book bid, ladies and gentlemen. All done then. Sold, 600. Lot number six. This is a limited print. Discovery uh, and pod in Jupiter Space uh, by Robert McCall. And I can start again with bids on the book. A bit lower than expected at 300 I have. 300 pounds it is. 300. 325, 350, 375 I have. 375 it's with me. At 375 I have. £375, it's here. Is there any advance at 375 At 375 once. Three, 400 thank you. At 400 now. It's online at 400 It's online at £400. Any advance at £400? At 400 it is. At 400 once. 400 twice. All done then. At £400, we're selling and it's away. 400 Lot number seven, a limited edition, uh, number one autograph print of Bedroom and um, Monolith by Keith Hampshire. There we are with the Bedroom and the Monolith by Keith Hampshire. And I can start the bidding with this here straight away in at £600 I have. Straight away in at 600 At 600 the book bid has it. At £600, is there any advance? £600. £600 I have at 600 700 now, and I'm out. 700, I'm out on the prop store live here. It's 700, 800 now. 800, 800, I have at 800. 900, new place. With you, sir, on the floor at 900. At 900 on the floor at 900. 1,000 against you. No, at one, 1,100 now. Moving on. At 1,100 pounds online at 1,100. Any advance at 1,100 pounds? At 1,100 pounds we have. 1,200. 1,200 here. All on the prop store live here. At 1,200 pounds. At 1,200. 1,200. Sale room, eye collector. Any bids? No. 13 now. At 13 it is. 1,300 pounds. Your last chance at 1,300. Can I tempt you for another bid, sir? At 1,300 once. 
1300 twice. All done then. Selling online at 1300. Sold 1300. Lot number eight, lot number eight, a uh, 2001 Space Odyssey limited edition print. This is the centrifuge aboard Discovery by Robert McCall. And I can start immediately here with me. I jump straight in. 500 pounds it is. At 500, 500. At 500. This iconic artwork here at 500 pounds. Limited edition print at 500 it is. Six right at the back at six it is. Ladies bid at six. At 600 I have at 600. It's a floor bid at 600. Any advance at £600. Selling once. Selling twice. The gavel is raised at £600. All done then. Sold £600. 021. Thank you very much. Lot number nine. Now we've uh, moved on from the charity lots. Lot number nine is the... Entertainment, this is the handwritten and signed Stanley Kubrick letter. It's a very rare thing, uh, this wonderful letter here. And I can start the bidding with me straight away at £900. 900, 900. At £900 it is with me. At 900 I have. Is there any advance at 900 for the letter? 1,000, 1,100 now. At 1,100 against you all. At 1,100 pounds against you all at 1,100 it is. At £1,100. It's remaining here, internet bidder. It's remaining here with us. If you want it, bid now. It's at £1,100. £1,100 against you all. One more will do it. And it will be yours. £1,100. It's remaining here. You bid once. You've got to bid again. It's not an auction unless you bid twice. All done then. At £1,100. It's remaining here then. At £1,100. Are you sure, online bidder? No. With us here at £1,100 still. Lot number 10. Lot number 10. This is uh, 2001, a Space Odyssey production used script with colour revisions on there. And I can start the bidding with me straight away at... 1600, 1700, I'm in at 1700, at 1700, 1800, 1900, 2000. Now it's in the room and away at 2000 pounds. At 2000 pounds, is there any advance for the script? At 2000 pounds, I have. At 2000 pounds, it's here. Is there any advance at 2000? 2000 pounds once, 2000 pounds twice. Are we done? Selling in the room then at 2000 pounds, 287. Thank you. Wow, I'm surprised none of those guys, you know, did like the whole auctioneer thing with like, hey, I got a strange little bone, I got a strange little bone, I got a bone that's going to fly up into the sky. The bone's going to fly up into the sky. It's going to turn into a spaceship. Got a little bone going to turn into a spaceship. Can I get a 45, 45 for the bone in the spaceship? 45 for the, can I hear a 50, 50 for the bone in the spaceship? Uh, 1998, 1998, 2001. So. <laughs> 2000. <laughs> Good one. 2001. 2001 going once. 2000 going twice. 2001 going three times. Sold to 2001 guy. <laughs> So we change movies now. So this is Barry Lyndon here. This is the coat from Barry Lyndon. Few bids on this. Everybody's had a look at it. I can go straight in 2000, 25, 2750, 3000, 3250, 3250 at £3,500 now straight away. Straight away in at £3,500. 3750, thank you online. 3750, the bid is online now. Who's going to bid me 4000 to go on? Thank you, sir. 4000 I have now. At 4,000 at the back, 4,250. Four and a half now. 4,750. 
5,000. 6,000. 6,5. Do you want to go seven, sir? Are you sure? I've got six and a half online then. You were on a bit of a roll then. You sure you don't want to go one more? No. Thank you for trying, though. I have 6-5 online. Hammers up. Down it goes to you online. Well done. 5-1-7-3. Here's Johnny, the Jack Torrance's, Jack Nicholson's hero acts, ladies and gentlemen. A very iconic piece of film history. It was bought by a member of the crew because he needed to chop logs. But he kept it, and he didn't chop his logs with it. But here it is. It's come out to play for ceremonial purposes, and we're selling and away at £80,000 we have. We're already at £80,000, ladies and gentlemen, at £80,000. Is there any advance? At £80,000 it is. At £80,000 for this piece of film history. 90 now. At 90 I have. Any advance at 90 thousand pounds 90 is my bid at 90,000 is there any 95 100,000 100,000 pounds ladies and gentlemen 100,000 there's do I have 110 anywhere at 100,000 pounds telephone bidders are you coming to play at 100,000 pounds I have I've got 100,000 pounds once at a hundred, twice at a hundred, 110,000, 120,000. We're there online. There's a small battle going on online at 120,000 pounds. They're slowly chipping up that bidding increments. 120 we have, 120 we have. Any advance at 120,000? 120 once. 120 twice, 130, 140, 140 it is, 140 it is, 140 it is. Now don't wait for me to bid and to count it down, but we're going to. Selling once, selling twice for the third and final time. My very own gavel is up and down at 140,000 pounds and sold. very much lot number lot number 620 is the shining again 1980 jack torrance's jack nicholson's dress shirt dress shirt here in this fabulous crimson red at 1100 1200 it is at 1200 pounds i have at 1200 pounds 1300 1400 now at 14 and 15 and 16 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 i have at 19 it is at 19 against you 2000 now 2250 2250 two and a half two and a half it is two and a half two and a half thousand pounds i have at two and a half thousand pounds once two and a half thousand pounds twice all done then, and I'm selling, and it's away. 2750, 2750, 2750. Is there three anywhere else at 2750? Last chance then at 2750. Sold. Um, also, guys, in uh, October, 
Uh, we had The Shining in 4K make its way to the big screen. It also screened at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, so Mark and I did get to see uh, Shining in 4K. Uh, Mark, your takeaway? Well, they had those really comfy chairs that you can recline in. And by the time I got reclined, the movie started and I saw that it was out of focus. But I was too lazy to unrecline and go back and talk to the projectionist. But I could, even out of focus, the sound was awesome and the colors were all perfect. No more pink tennis ball. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing it sometime in focus. The sound was amazing. That was my takeaway as well. It, 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 the, the soundscape, the sound design of it, uh, and the spatiality of it was just unbelievable in that theater. Um, more so almost than the visuals which we've taken in. How many times have we seen The Shining? That that single element of the sound uh, and the new attention that was given to separating all the elements, putting them in their proper space was really, really something else. It was, it was as well done as it was with uh, 2001 uh, in 4K, which... Again, I saw last year, and uh, and what Cri- what Criterion did with the mono audio of Barry Lyndon uh, on the Blu-ray is just incredible too. But that's another uh, thing entirely. Someone taking a mono uh, soundtrack and sp- spatializing it, creating a much more interesting use of the even just the sound of like the horse's hooves on the cobblestone. And Barry Lynn was amazing, but yeah, I mean, I have to agree. the uh, The colors did look amazing uh, on the big screen and seeing it in 4K. Obviously, the last time I saw it was just a generic 35 millimeter print. But always happy to see The Shining. Um, and it's funny because there's part of you. I don't know about you, Mark, but there's part of you that goes like, oh, "I forgot," you know. This movie runs pretty long, you know, it's well over the two-hour mark. And then there's other part of me that's, like, remarking at the pacing and how well it moves along. And, of course, we're talking about the American, not the European cut um, for our listeners. But the fact that, you know, with so much going on in the story, Kubrick really does move through all of it with exceptional pacing and again, for a movie that's well over two hours, you know, it's kind of like this weird paradox because it, it 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 takes its time, but at the same time, you feel like it's moving right along. Does that make any sense, Mark? Yeah, as I get older, I do experience the movies, the, the great ones, starting with 2001, more as musical performances than as something that I have to analyze as it's going on. Mm. I just basically experience it and mainly a large part through the music and the editing. Mm. Yeah. And how they go together. Well, we were hoping that was going to be something they would continue uh, with, you know, having some more screenings of it, but I think it really only happened uh, two times in the span of one month. And just to promote the nefarious Dr. Sleep. 
Yeah, exactly. And and we're going to come to that, obviously, now. But that was the big thing was they were telling you, oh, there's going to be an exclusive about Dr. Snooze. And we're going <laughs> to show it after The Shining. And we sat there and it was like, all right, we just watched a, you know, a, a, a two and a half minute TV commercial. Um. There was probably people there just to see the Oh, preview. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to sit through two and a half hours of some other movie. Yeah, some other movie just to get to <laughs> this nonsense. But I know I do remember uh, overhearing a- at least one other group of people when you and I saw it together. It was one other group of people who was just, you know, after the behind-the-scenes exclusive, they were just like, that was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I guess they expected like a half-hour documentary or something about it, but... And little did they know they had seen the only good two and a half minutes of Dr. Sleep. There are two and a half good minutes? (laughs) Get out of here. I don't believe you. Wait a minute. Were those the two... Oh, I know which two and a half minutes. The ones at the end? Like the very last two and a half when the credits are rolling? (laughs) You know, so all right, so let's 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 uh let's come to that because we're going to come back to this in another episode. Obviously, we're going to have some friends of the show come on and we're going to just have a bit of fun with it, but you know, it, here's my thing. Like I'm not you know interested in seeing it. I'm never going to see it. Um you know what's really funny is the guy who cuts my hair. <laughs> he he said that he and his boyfriend, they're huge horror fans and he said uh you know, well, we wanted to see it, you know, because we love The Shining, obviously, and we were, you know, skeptical that it was going to be any good. And at one point while he's cutting my hair, my friend Mark Bluestein saying, uh, you know, he and his boyfriend just considered it, you know, an abortion. He said, it's just, it's, and I know he meant to say an abomination. <laughs> he kept saying, "Oh, Doctor Sleep is it's just, it's an abortion, it's an abortion," and I was like, "I love the guys. So I didn't have the heart to correct him." <laughs> I was like, yes, it is. But you have just you have just corrected him now. If he listens it's to okay. the show, no, I will, I will, I will tag him on this because he does listen to the show. He's a great guy, and yes, he's a fan of the show, and. um uh, I, I just thought that was so funny because there was a Rush Job podcast some guys had put out, and I only listened to about 15 minutes of it. I forget who it was. I feel bad because they had some really funny take on it. They were just reacting to what was obviously a very negative take on Dr. Sleep. And the one guy said to his podcast partner, I wish I could think of a nicer way to put it but dr sleep basically rapes the shining and i mean of course he's not being literal he's just using one of those social media haha i'm so clever kind of terms but it was funny because i kind of knew what he meant like just from looking at the trailers i was like you know and and i I saved this one article i'll send it to you guys it was like uh 19 reasons why uh dr sleep won me over and it was the most nonsensical stuff. It was like they they gave 
uh, adult-sized big wheels to all the production assistants to ride around on the Overlook set. I'm like, that doesn't make it a good movie. Why are you posting this to the internet? Like, that's what won you over? To be, really? Like, you were some original first-generation Shining fan, and you were really skeptical when you heard about a sequel. But then, something about the fact that they gave everybody an iPad Pro with the full <laughs> blueprints of the Overlook on it, like, n- not in the movie theater, like, people who worked on the show, well, of course you'd give them that. It's called tools to do your job. Like, I, I don't understand why... They- and it just seems to me like it the most unnecessary sequel in the history of sequels. I love what you and you say. You're saying that without. Watching I won't it. watch it. I don't need to see it to know it sucks. <laughs> right? Who's seen it here? I, I no. Mark, have you seen it? No. I, honestly, I'm withholding judgment. My expectations are so low that I can only be happily surprised. Yo, 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 so, real, real quick. So t- two of us have real seen quick, it. Late last night, I was I hopped on SCAS and I saw James had responded to somebody's comment. It was like, uh, it just made me want to go watch 2010. And I was like, ding, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it cracked me up. I was like, here he is. He gave it a shot, you know, and he's like, no, nope, I think I'm going to go watch Peter Hyam's sequel because that's an actual good sequel. I mean, I see bad, I, I, despite my efforts to only see good movies, and a very, you know, there's so, I mean, there's, there's exponentially more movies in existence than you could possibly see in your lifetime. It's true. Everybody's discerning about what they choose to see, so I only try to see good movies, um, but I still see a lot worse movies than this. This wasn't that horrible. Yeah. You know, it was... It was okay. There were parts that were okay, and there were parts that were ridiculous. I mean, basically, it it, it felt to me like The Shining Four. <laughs> <laughs> the end was like forced gratuitously, like revisiting the first movie. Yes, and that was like the last fifteen percent of the movie, but the first eighty-five percent. It seemed way too much of a departure. It didn't it didn't seem like the first sequel. It felt like the fourth sequel. And it basically was it came down to vampires versus ghosts. Yeah. The shining colon, vampires versus ghosts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But it, even that said, there was still it I see a lot worse movies from time to time. And it, and it was it was okay. And it, and I got to admit there were it was cool little bits here and there. Because I love The Shining. It's like, oh, he referenced my movie. He referenced the movie I love. And that's that's a it was a little cool. And then the ending, of course, they go back to the Overlook. I had thought that, you know, spoiler alert. If you didn't see the movie, you may don't keep listening. But I had thought that they were gonna. I thought everything. I knew they they had scenes in the Overlook, but I thought it was gonna be in visions and things like that. I didn't realize that they they actually go back to it, and somehow it's unlocked. I don't know. How, there was so many like. Things that didn't make sense. How the heck would you be able to get into, you know, go up a, a snowy mountain in, a, in your car and then go into a locked you know, hotel? It was there were a lot of ridiculous things, but that was cool. But they, you know, they had to ha- have other act. Every, every character you could think of from the first movie is back. Everyone. That's and that's and that's just called fan service. That's what the kids call fan service. And and part of it, I was simultaneously like. Oh, that's ridiculous, and oh, that's cool. But like one side of my brain was like, "This is so ridiculous," and one side of my brain was, "But 
Part of me likes correct, it. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Don't they apparently use some form of the word shine or shining like eight to 15 times in the first 20 minutes of the movie just to remind people like, oh, this is about the shining. They had another word for it. The, the, the vampire people called it something else. Yeah. What do vampires like? Okay, so they eat the souls of people who have the shining. Like what is like what was Stephen King thinking? What does that have anything to do? Forget about Kubrick's film for a second with his own source novel of like he's all about, oh, it's a writer and he's battling these demonic forces and he sacrifices himself to the boiler to save his family at the end. Like, what does a group of vampires who eat souls have anything to do? Of that joke in Family Guy where they have one of the cutaways and they go, it's like, uh, you know, Stephen King's 75th novel and they cut away to him meeting with the publisher. Okay, for my 307th book, uh, this couple is attacked by a... Uh, a lamp monster. Ooh, 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 ooh. You're not even trying anymore, are you? When can I have it? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That's what it felt. Yeah, it didn't feel like you know. He, it's what is it? His 80th novel. And he's so disingenuous the way he says. Like, I, I mean, I, I think Mark. We didn't he see in that clip when he said. Uh, Something like, well, I was always curious about whatever happened to Danny Torrance. Like, how many freaking characters have you created over the years? <laughs> and you're, you're all this time, it's been nagging at you that you never wrote uh, the continuing story of Dan Torrance. Like, give me a break. It's so disingenuous. He emasculates and Dan, he's like a wimpy, weak, wimpy person throughout the whole movie. Yeah. So keep telling me why I need to see this movie. <laughs> You know, and it and the, he dies in the overlook, and he turns into a ghost, and 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 he has I don't know, he he becomes an alcoholic. So so it was so important to King that the underlying story of his book was about out fighting alcoholism, and Kubrick ripped that soul out of the story. Right. And what does he do with his next story? His continuation. He makes Danny an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. That's a good point. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. Many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something. <gasps> I'm running away from myself, I guess. Hi. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. It's a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These empty devils, they'll eat what shines. And they noticed that little girl. Wow. 
Hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. Where are we going? There's a place. You sure you want to do this? I'm ready. You run, dear. And then I will find you. And you will scream for years. Come play with us forever and ever. Well, I, I mean, it's just, it's again, it's just, I don't. I don't understand it. It's this is this is my biggest problem with it you're you're deliberately trying to create a conclusion you're providing an answer and in doing so Stephen King you're missing the point of what makes Stanley Kubrick's version of your novel as discussed as every other Stanley Kubrick film for all these years it's not about giving the viewer an answer that's what we have Marvel movies for or any other kind of movie. It's just like, here's the ending. It's all wrapped up in a bow. And Kubrick wanted you to have your own questions and have more of them to go off and discuss with, you know, other people who enjoyed the work. And it just seems to me that it misses the entire point. That's why, again, I say the most unnecessary sequel, perhaps, in the history of films is to just make a movie that's like, oh... He gave you a question. Oh, I'm going to give you an answer because I didn't like, you know. Yeah, but are we talking about the the, the film or the book here? I didn't read the book. Yeah, I don't know what, how much the director. Uh, but I, from what I understand, it was you know King worked with him. I don't know, but the um, yeah, we did. Doctor Sleep. You know, in, in the movie at least, these both the people with the shining and the vampire people, in every they have a new like superpower or ability now they can do this and now they can do this and, and there's something else they can do and like wait you're just giving them that ability because you want it in the scene how many different things can they do <laughs> it's just yeah again you know like all I, basically danny and and halloran could do was kind of like have visions and talk to each other without opening their mouths they didn't have all these superpowers but in the new movie right then, right at one point, she orbits the Earth. Oh, Jesus. I swear to God, I love that scene. And then when they go, they go they go into other people's minds, and their minds are a library. I mean, with like Dewey, with like drawers and Dewey Decimal System. Anyway, um, I'm babbling. Yeah. It's, it's oh, really I've seen it twice now, uh, and I went in with a fully open mind. You know me, I'm, I'm quite open-minded. I went in with a very open mind. Uh, I went to the cinema and watched it, and then I watched it at home yesterday. Um, I fell asleep both times, <laughs> and I'm not even a doctor. And you, you wonder what what, yeah, you wonder why I'm but, calling but, it doctor's, but I'm not, but I'm doctor's not, snore. But, I'm, but, but I am not saying that film is bad, because... I'm a, I'm an eternally, you know, open to these kind of things. And this, there's actually probably three different audiences for this film. There's a Stanley Kubrick Shining fans. There's the, uh, the new audience that haven't got a clue about Stanley Kubrick Shining. And then you've got the middle ground that are slightly aware of it. Now, 
this film will appeal differently to everyone. To me as a Stanley Kubrick fan, well, to me as a film fan, it was just rubbish. But but that's not, that is not an indictment on the film itself. That's my, what I'm trying to say is for a new audience who know nothing about Stephen King, The Shining or Stanley Kubrick, a new young audience who go and watch that, it's possibly a good film. No, but okay, well, real quick, if that's the case, because let's keep it real, those are the people who are driving box office sales these days. It's not the, the geezers yes. and the pensioners like us. It's these young yes. kids. If they're if they're the ones who are open to it, why has the movie tanked at the box office? Why did Doctor Sleep not even make its money back? Oh, I've no idea. I didn't know that it had tanked. Has it oh, officially yeah. tanked? Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. It, it's probably not great word of mouth. There's a lot of there's a lot of silliness in it, and a lot of you know things like, like I was saying. They're, 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 how does how can they be doing that? How can they be doing this? And, right. And it's a little bit silly. It, it, it's okay. I like I said, I've seen a lot worse. But one last point I, I, I would like to make is that you know by reading the group all the time, and you know I just want to be careful because there's people. I, you know, I'm sure you're going to edit a lot of this out. I don't know if even this would make it in, but just even to tell you guys, you know, there are Kubrick fans and Kubrick fanboys, and there's sycophants, and there's, yes, yes. you know, if a lot of people will hate us, just love Stanley so much that they'll hate it just because, like, how dare you make a sequel? And they, and they, there, you know, there were, there were a couple, I said there's no more arguments. There's still some arguments on the group, and there were a couple of arguments. And people like, like you know, the, somebody was saying there's so much anger on this group. And sometimes it's true. There are some people who will like not. How dare you? Like, that's my Stanley. And don't you don't you dare. Right. Right. You know, I don't I, don't, I really don't want to bash Dr. Sleep and sound like I'm one of those. No, no, me. I'm the same. Jason, Jason comes across that. Oh, way. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What, this movie is an abortion. It's an abortion. <laughs> Tell me again why I need to see it because everything, every, okay, every, what I'm trying to say is everybody who's seen it that had favorable things to say about it could not say, could not help but include like, yeah, but I had a problem with this and that was really kind of lame. Like the thing that came back when they've got, you know, a guy who, you know, who, who looks like Jack Nicholson as Lloyd. And now he's Lloyd, the bartender. He didn't, only the haircut. He didn't even look. Go ahead. And, and yeah, and it's, and it's, and it's Henry Thomas from E.T. And it's his dad. And he's like, you're my father. And he's like, no, I'm the bartender here. And like, somebody showed me a screenshot of that because they know I don't care about spoilers. I'm not averse to knowing. And I, and I wasn't going to see it anyway. And I was just like, yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I don't, I don't know. I do think there's something funny in the idea of, like, if people want to come at me and be like, but you won't even see it. I'm just going to be like, I don't need to see it to know that it sucks. Because here's here's my whole thing. Kubrick, my introduction to a lifetime of enjoyment of Stanley Kubrick all goes back to The Shining and me being 11 and a half years old when it was first broadcast uh, on, on, on UHF channels out of like, I think Staten Island or Long Island around here. And I remember seeing it on like an old television set in my house and in my neighbor's living room. I have clear memories of being very young and seeing it. 
And I was just hypnotized by it. I didn't even know if I loved the movie or what it was I liked about it. I just had to leave it on. I loved all those tracking shots down the hallways long before I understood anything about cinema. And my love for and affection of The Shining as a piece of art has only grown so much over the years that, yes, I will admit, I am deathly afraid that if I see Dr. Sleep, it will prevent me from unseeing the things I don't like about it and how that will tie into Kubrick's, you know, master, one of his masterpieces. I'm, I'm, I don't want that to happen. Oh, I understand <laughs> that. I like 2010. I do too. I like Adrian Lyons' Lolita. Yeah, so I do. Right. Yeah. So do. Yep. To insert one quick little thing. We don't have our list because uh, it fits here, but another event was somebody made a movie that's an adaptation of Fear and Desire. Now, Fear and Desire is not based on a source no- novel. It's it's he wrote Kubrick wrote it for the he wrote the screenplay. It's an original right, screenplay. Right. You know, I don't think anybody's ever ready to fight in a war. I think we do it instinctively in order to survive. Hey, Private Paparazzi. Since you have a weapon, stay close to us. All right. Look with your shotgun. You can end someone's life, but you know, with my camera, I can make them live forever. What's wrong with the truck? This is the outpost from which we left this morning. We traveled about six miles or so to the enemy line. Then about another six miles or so, I would say we broke down about right there. So it's called Down River, and I know this is going to be terrible, but I'm going to watch it just out of curiosity. Yeah, and yeah. I, views were like this is like worse than terrible. It's amateurish, and and technically it's a 2018 movie, but it's I just heard about it. We just heard about it a couple weeks ago, and I downloaded it, mm. and I'm going to watch it. It looks really bad. Oh my gosh. It's also the curiosity factor. That's the perfect segue to Virginia Leith. Well, that was the thing I was going to say. We did uh, we did lose her in uh, November, on November 4th. Virginia Leith, or is it Leith? I'm not sure. She passed. Of course, for us uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans, or Misties, as we call ourselves, she was also Jan in the pan in the classic... Uh, <laughs> the classic the brain that wouldn't die and i just want to add that this film which is called the brain that wouldn't die at the very end credits right when it goes to the final credits it says the, the title card accidentally says the head that wouldn't die that's that's the kind of b movie we're talking about here her brain kept alive by experimental science by a man whose abnormal passions inspired him to try the impossible. I brought her back. She'll live and I'll get her another body. Yes, and what of her soul? How can you make of her an experiment of horror? His mad ambitions and desires threaten every woman possessing an attractive body. Girls whose measurements make them beauty contest participants. Professional figure models such as this. All are prey to his distorted desires. What's locked behind that door? Horror. No normal mind can imagine. Something even more terrible than you. 
Horror has its ultimate. And I'm that. Behind that door is the sum total of Dr. Cordner's mistakes. He intends to kill somebody. To rob them of their body. We've got to stop him. And she was phenomenal in it. And of course, she was, you know, uh, able to make a living in a number of uh, those kinds of films, I think, after uh, Fear and Desire. And it was one of those things, I think, for a period of time there where she really wasn't, you know, obviously present, had no presence on social media where you hear that she passed away and you're like, she was still alive? Like, you know, She was so beautiful in Fear and Desire. Like, she's movie star. Couldn't agree film. more. Well, I remember, uh, I don't know, James, if it was your thought originally, but quite some time ago when Fear and Desire came up in SCAS and I think it was you, I recall seeing a comment that was like, yo, you know what, the movie really does work if you kind of take it as a lost Twilight Zone episode. I said, that's how I feel. (laughs) I thought that was a really good point because that, you know, well, it's well said and that does help to unlock a kind of a newfound appreciation, especially for those of us who already love the Twilight Zone and may have struggled with uh, an appreciation for fear and desire. Okay, some of the di- some of the acting is a little. It's okay. He was he was learning. Yeah, I've seen I've seen early like lost first films by a bunch of uh, uh, like David Lynch, the grandmother. I remember and the Alphabet. Uh, Cronenberg, something by Jim Jarmusch called Permanent Vacation. Wow. Things that you think you've seen the first one and then you find it. No, he made a student film. Yeah. Uh, George Lucas did that. He did an earlier version of... Of THX 1138. Yeah, he did a whole early version. Hoover should have been all embarrassed by it. I agree. It was interesting what Nathan recently said about Fear and Desire, which was the fact that he can't. Nathan's take on it is that um, Kubrick disowned that film because it showed too much of his hand. I think that's how he described it, which is yeah. basically saying that it kind of revealed his thought process too much. Yeah, rather than I love that. You know, rather than the ambiguity that we all love. Right, right. It was too on the nose. I think is the point. Maybe it kind yeah. of makes sense when when I heard Nathan say that. It, it kind of made sense. Well, Kubrick mm. said they had good ideas, they just didn't know how to dramatize them. Mm. Which, that's also true. That's the pragmatic look. But I like how Nathan said it. He did, you, don't, you have to disguise those things. You can't be blatant with them. Yeah. I, I stumbled on a documentary, James. I wonder if you ever saw it. It just popped up on my YouTube feed. But I can send it to you because you guys mentioned the early works of some of these directors. Scorsese made it a film where he basically just talks with his parents. Yeah. yeah that, Italian American. Great film. It is it is interesting. Um and then he did, you know, of course he who was it? Was who was the one who did the the student film that was De Niro's first De pa- movie? De Palma did uh, It was De Palma, yeah, De yeah, Palma. It, it did the wedding party which was kind of a student art film. This the wedding party, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, there's kind of a weird you know, there, there's a great book 
called Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Oh yeah, yeah. Pe- Peter of. Biskind. Yeah, Peter Biskind, and it's uh, it, it covers the Hollywood Revolution that happened, and there always seems to be a bit of uh, some outlying going on in the likes of Cronenberg and um, uh, Brian De Palma. I mean, they of course they had some really successful movies, even box office successes. Cronenberg's remake of The Fly was definitely a box office hit. And that's a Brooks films, by the way. Mel Brooks was the executive producer. Ah, yeah, People that's forget. right, yeah. Yeah. As was uh, The Elephant Man. And, and exactly, and The Elephant Man, David Lynch. I mean, that was all Mel Brooks. Um, God bless him. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, people forget De Palma directed uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah. That, that was his first kind of big Hollywood... Well... I suppose The Untouchables was his first uh, big Hollywood mover. Yeah. Uh, and then he took a few years out, didn't he? Uh, doing, it went back to like Raising Kane and some of the other smaller ones. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, Mission Impossible, that was kind of really un, un De Palma to me. Yeah, it still I, I mean, you me. had all, it still is to me. It still don't feel it like is. a De Palma film. It, it, it is. In the same sense that uh, in Cronenberg's work, you have. Movies like Eastern Promises and and History of Violence, yes. which I I love that Two film. Great films. But it doesn't feel like a David Cronenberg film at all when you compare it to uh, Scanners or Videodrome uh, or what was it Sisters or was that De Palma? No, that yeah. was De Palma. Uh, and and De Palma made movies like uh, Body Double. Um. That was him, right? And yeah. Then Body Heat. Who was Body Heat? Taz Dad. And Blowout. Blowout. That was an early. That was a good De Palma movie from about 1982 or something, weren't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but those guys have that kind of outlier status when you read the the Peter Biskin book and you realize that you know the the core group of Spielberg, Coppola, um, Scorsese, Lucas, Scorsese, Lucas. And, you know, a couple others, they really were the ones who changed the game from Hollywood Hollywood from the inside out. But there really were a whole bunch of others. I mean, John Landis was a stuntman, and he was just making films for his own amusement and having fun with it. John Landis ended up making, you know, some big box office hits, Coming to America. He did Michael Jackson's Thriller video. Tra- trading um, Places. The blue, trading the Places blues was Brothers, a big Animal hit. Blues, yeah, the the, the yeah. most successful comedy ever. Then that group that never really became big was Monty Hellman. I didn't realize he directed the the Kubrick the the Stanley Stanley's girlfriend. In yeah, 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 yeah. What was this? So say that, say that again. again? In that whole early seventies, the, the group of people you were just naming, there was a movie called Two Lane Blacktop. Oh yeah, yeah. Monty Hellman was the director, and he seemed like he was also gonna gonna um, gonna brand- break out. But he never, it never really worked for him. And he did direct like 10 movies. But yeah. one of the, there was a movie called Trapped Ashes, which was like one of those movies that was like four different movies. What do you call those? I don't know what you call that. And uh, yeah. there's like episodes within the movie. Like, like, like the creep show. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. One segment was called Tr- Stanley's Girlfriend. And it's the character is clearly... Based off of Stanley Cooper. He's not Stanley Kubrick in the episode, but his right, name is right. And you could tell it's supposed to be Kubrick. The, the segment I'm doing is, is a speculation on uh, 
what reasons Stanley Kubrick may have had for leaving Hollywood and uh, spending the rest of his working days in Europe. It, well, first of all, the, the film has uh, a number of different styles, which is common when you have uh, an anthology. And our story is uh, probably the most uh, realistic, uh, as opposed to, you know, some of the ones that are very, very surreal and, uh, and fantastic. Uh, so we have a story that seems to be reality, that then becomes very uh, amazing and fantastic. Uh, so the style throughout the bulk of it is is real, and then you know we go into a kind of a flashback that gives us a completely different picture. What's your name? I'm Stanley. Nice to meet you. It's in a low-budget thriller I'd written. It was about a teenager who pretended to crash his bicycle so older women would take pity on him and let him into their homes. Then he strangled them. I actually met Stanley Kubrick uh, briefly uh, in about the same period as our story. Uh, and I wanted to, to cast someone who had a physical resemblance because I, I'm very reluctant to, to do uh, biographical stories uh, because it's so difficult to to make them real uh, so I wanted some kind of reality there but more importantly I wanted someone who was psychologically like Stanley Kubrick who could really that we would believe uh, was not only a genius uh, but had you know such self-confidence at such an early stage in his career and not only believed that he would be a great director but believed you know knew inside that he was a great director so I wanted someone who had that authority and and conviction and intelligence and just the aura of Stanley Kubrick okay so all right so then later on in November Winding down 2019, guys, of course, we did learn that Eyes Wide Shut's re-release uh, was accompanied by Matt Wells's short documentary, Never Just a Dream, and uh, Stephen got to see that, uh, I believe, the 29th of November, and uh, you have any thoughts about that, Stephen? Uh, yes, um, it was really great to see... As well, just on the big screen again. Uh, I did see it on its original release in '99, um, but this time seeing it on the big screen was absolutely fantastic. Um, it was nice to see Matt's uh, short film beforehand, um, and yeah, it, it, it was. As we say, all films are better on the big screen, and although you know most of us get bogged down with watching things on our TVs at home. It's such a treat to get out there and see a film on the big screen, the way it was designed. Because all these old directors that we like, they were composing their shots and making their films and editing their films based on a big vision. Mm. And for us to see them on the TV, we're not getting the original intention. So, yeah, it was great to see it on the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing... I can imagine. ...about the big... Go on, Mark. ...about the big screen is you're trapped with that film for two and a half hours, and it's not... Yeah. It's not divided up into segments like a TV show would be, where 
you know, you can go to the bathroom or something or it's designed as an uninterrupted experience and you only get that if you see it in the cinema. Yes. Right. Speaking of which, uh, keep chatting. I need 30 seconds for a pee break. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, I had something that wasn't on the list. I guess it's a good spot to insert and it's a little minor thing. Remember when um, Jane Fonda was being arrested? So they have that of the BAFTA annual, I guess their version of like the Oscar, the Academy Award. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. You, you, you texted that earlier. I don't know anything about this. What was this Jane Fonda thing? So they, have that award. they have the Stanley Kubrick Award every year. It started like five years ago. Yeah, Matt Damon won it last year or the year before. Yes, he did. So Jane Fonda won it. Jane Fonda has been at these, I don't even know which protest about something, but she, um, she got arrested several times. She got arrested and she went back to the protest and got arrested again. Recently? Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And so she she heard she so she's there's a you could go on YouTube. There's a, vi- a video of her being handcuffed, and then like a, you know news cameras are on her, and she says, "Oh, and by the way, I wanted to thank the British Academy, the BAFTA, for giving me the Stanley Kubrick Award." That's great. It's awesome. I'm receiving the Stanley Kubrick. Britannia Award for Excellence in Film. I am so, I'm so honored. <laughs> I can't even believe it. I'm so, I'm so grateful. It's thrilling. And I'm sorry I'm not there, but as you may have heard, I've been getting arrested. I decided that I needed to do more. And so I've moved to DC for four months and trying to heighten the sense of urgency that there needs to be. This is a crisis, not just here, but all over the world. Thank you, BAFTA. And anyway, that's why I'm not with you tonight, but it's for a good cause. And uh, my heart is with you, and I'm so grateful. Thank you very, very much. BAFTA, thank you. Thank you. For the Stanley Kubrick Britannia Award for Excellence in Films. Thank you. I'm sorry I'm not there. I'm very honored. Okay, guys, and then in early December, we had the release of a film called Sparks in the Dark. I know, uh, James, you and Stephen both got to see it. Uh, Tell the listeners about what you thought. Well, it's technically a film from late. It came out late 2018, and it's a uh, we we found it in this uh, this this month, and it because I've been looking for it, and you know how I like to hunt things down, and I get mm-hmm. results. So I finally found the per- it's it's a production of Turner Classic Movie in Spain. For some reason, I guess the the people who came up with the idea and and then uh, it's sponsored by you know they got the permission of the Kubrick Estate, and they uh, made this 20 minute film which is brilliant and what it is it's it's animated it's a cartoon but it's really beautifully animated and they got Kier Delea so this is what Kier Delea was telling you personally Jason like a year and a half ago when he said yeah I just did this this vocal thing that this is what he was talking about right right you could maybe speak to that a little bit when I'm done but it's called 2001 Sparks in the Dark. I'm not sure what the, why that's the title, but it's Kier Delea. It's a cartoon of Kubrick. 
sitting on a sofa being interviewed, and it's it's the Playboy 1968 interview. So that they're taking the transcript of that article, magazine article, that interview, and um, so they have a man, some generic man sitting there who's the interviewer, and here Delea does the voice of Kubrick, and he's doing all these fantastic quotes about. Uh, what are some of the favorite, you know, you have to, throughout, throughout this darkness, you have to find your own light. and Yeah, 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 from the Playboy interview. Yeah. Testing, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. Interview with Stanley Kubrick on the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, August 20th, 1968, London, Great Britain. Mr. Kubrick, we would like to thank you again for this interview. We know you're a busy man. The pleasure's mine. Okay. Should we begin? Yes. Great. It's been at a few film festivals, and it's up for... It won an award, and I've been waiting for them to show it here in the States, but it's been over a year and haven't shown it yet. Yeah. You know, at this point, I'd buy and I've looked, I could, I would, I bought it if I could. Right, <laughs> it's right, not right. available. It, it's actually a, a Turner Classic Movie production. It start, it's, it's doing, but it was on a few days ago. They're, they're, they're having a special, like, late December, like, a, leading up to the holidays, they're having, they're showing a whole bunch of documentaries that are film related on TC, TCM Spain. So they they showed yeah. they've shown something else. But I sent it to Vincent Labruno, who's the biographer of Kubrick, the other day, and he he watched it and he said um, it's a great idea that they used the setting of the Playboy interview, which touched so heavily on 2001. The film has an otherworldly feel to it. The computer graphics are excellent in that it evokes Kubrick, but yet transcends his external being into his philosophy on the universe. Here, Delea, who has who was such a dear man, did a great job. He had such admiration and love for the film and for Kubrick. The music reminds me of Philip Glass a bit, and the slow motion images of the children at the end evoked a Jeffrey Reggio film. Um, in the end, this becomes more of an interview um, but a way of showing how the film, I think he meant it becomes less of an interview, but more of a way of showing the film concerns life and space. The stills of Kubrick at the end connected with the man himself. Great job by these filmmakers. Now, Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Reggio did, um, what was yeah, that? Kai Nakatsi and, uh, Nakatsi and uh, uh, Baraka, was oh, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the first time I've ever said those words out loud. Before any of us, tell us about when Kier told you, Jason. Wow. I, I just remember that he was, uh, when I asked him if he was working on anything, um, he he did mention that. Um, and uh, I, I don't recall saying, oh, anything specifically Kubrick related. He just offered that he was working on a new documentary uh, that he was going to narrate. Um, he might have said in the voice, I think he did say in the voice of 
Stanley Kubrick or he was going to be reading that part. He might have asked me if I was familiar with the 1968 interview in Playboy. Um, that's that's about as much as I remember. But uh, you know, he 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 sure sounded like he was uh, happy to still be doing uh, things related to 2001. And uh, did, hey, did you guys see that thing that Willem Hopman posted in his group from the? I think it was WPIX. James, you must have saw that. He posted uh, a, a video of it was like something night at the movies, like Friday night at the movies that Channel Eleven used to have, or maybe it was WOR Channel Nine. They had uh, no, 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 but I'm gonna look for it. Oh man, it 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 has full introductions of Kier in like nineteen late seventies, early eighties. He made an appearance on PIX when they were going to show 2001 a space odyssey with limited commercial interruptions you know one of those things from back in the day and they had him and kira's got like kind of longish hair and you could see he was oh going yeah great i saw that oh so cool hi i'm kira delay a member of the channel 5 movie club tonight we're in for a rare treat thanks to wnewfm and the channel 5 movie club 2001 A Space Odyssey is probably the most widely referred to movie of the past two decades. It's the film that set the standards for most science fiction pictures which were to follow. It greatly influenced directors and producers like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. It is the predecessor of Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, War Games, and a host of other movies. You know, when 2001 was first shown in 1968, it was dismissed by some of the critics. It confused many audiences, but today, the story seems clear as crystal. The ideas are easy to grasp, and the effects are nothing short of dazzling. Prepare yourself for a visit to the dawn of man, a trip to the moon, a voyage to Jupiter and beyond, some encounters with monoliths planted by a higher force, and a face-to-face -face struggle with HAL 9000, a computer with murder on his mind. You'll also witness my own personal transformation by a supreme being into the star child. Perhaps the single most exciting vision created by Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. Later, during an intermission, I'll tell you a bit more about the making of 2001. Now, tune in your FM stereo set or Walkman to WNEW-FM at 1027. Switch all your TV sets to Channel 5 and have a multimedia event in your own home like never before. 2001 A Space Odyssey will be shown with limited commercial interruptions and begins after these messages. 2001 A Space Odyssey will be shown with limited commercial interruptions and simulcast in stereo on WNEW-FM 102.7. I don't know how Willem found that. For me, that was one of the highlights of 2019. <laughs> oh, did I just say 2019? <laughs> I said, I meant 2019. He uh, he found that God knows where, but I was like, because it brought back a tidal wave of childhood memories of seeing stuff like that um, back when you had, and they would have like a stereo simulcast, you know, certain TV shows. And I believe that was actually, if you watch, if you watch out for uh, Willem's clip, that find of his has Keir doing a full introduction and then at the intermission... 
I was finishing up work on Bunny Lake is Missing in London in 1967 when I visited a fun fair at Battersea Park. There was a palmist who looked at my hand and he said he saw a spaceship. Well, the very next day, I received a call from Stanley Kubrick inviting me to appear in 2001 Space Odyssey. Stanley is a genius. He's, he's a renaissance man. I was in great awe of his pictures by that time. Dr. Strangelove, uh, Lolita. So working with him was a great pleasure. Actors, I don't think ever get really defensive with him because we have total trust in him and his ideas. The most memorable scene for me was the one you will see shortly when I blast myself from the vacuum of space into the emergency pod bay. There was a horizontal set which was constructed upside down and I was suspended by a piano wire balanced by one circus roustabout. I think you'll find the scene very effective. After the film, I'll tell you my thoughts about its spectacular conclusion. Our special Channel 5 movie club showing of 2001 A Space Odyssey is a stereo simulcast of WNEW-TV and WNEW-FM. Back to the picture after these messages. In a moment, the final sequences of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And, you know, he's, he's just very articulate. You can tell he's he either wrote his thoughts beforehand or, you know, was just very... Uh, well-spoken in the moment maybe they did a few takes who knows but uh it was great to see him you know i think he's got like polyester blazer on and he's talking about working with the and you know of course at this time when he made it you know kubrick was still very much alive he's talking about it ebulliently it was just cool i really liked it in a moment, final comments by Keir DeLay and the closing credits of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Making 2001 A Space Odyssey was a subjective experience for Gary Lockwood and all the other members of the cast. While we were briefed on our own characters in great depth, we weren't familiar with all the effects or the story or philosophy during the shooting. We saw the, the film the way you did 15 years ago or this evening awestruck, thrilled, confused, and delighted. Perhaps we can look at 2001 as the greatest birthday film of all time. The birth of man, the rebirth of man into the next stage, symbolized by the star child returning to Earth at the conclusion. The clues are all there. Haywood Floyd wished his daughter a happy birthday from space. Poole's parents called him from Earth to wish him a happy birthday. And during Hal 9000's lobotomy, he mentioned his birthday. However one approaches the picture, it is one to remember, and I'm proud I was a part of it. Next week, the Channel 5 Movie Club presents Sean Connery, Donald Sutherland, and Leslie Ann Down in The Great Train Robbery, a delightful Michael Crichton thriller that will take us back to the 19th century. Thanks for joining me for this special stereo simulcast. This is Keir DeLay. Good night. Hey, James. Can you hear me?
<laughs> Can you hear me, brother? Uh, yeah, do you remember that um, Z Channel documentary that you uh, sent over to me a few years ago? He means Z. Z Channel. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know the connection? The connection with that documentary and the new Harris Kubrick documentary. No. What is it? What's the connection? Same director, FX Fina. FX Feeney, I think he's only made three movies, or three documentaries. The first was um, the Z Channel documentary, and and the current one is the one that he's doing with James Harris. Nice. Mm. Yeah, that was a really well done channel. That was also, you know something's good if you don't really know the, the topic. I don't know, I mean, like, I'm, you know, that, that was a local loss. If you didn't grow up in Los Angeles, well, how would you know about that? So that was, uh, but it was still fascinating to me. It was so well done. Yeah, what what was the guy called who uh, run that uh, channel? Uh, I'm looking it up now. Uh... Oh, you look it up. One other note on um, Sparks in the Dark. The um, they had you got there's a sound even though it's a 20 minute short. There's a soundtrack for the film that you can buy on Amazon. Yeah, by yeah by the artists. Yeah, there's two, there's two artists in there. Yep. Renate and something. Yeah. Quite cool. Anything else we need to touch upon? A book? I by, see. By the way, it was Jerry Harvey, the guy behind Z Channel. Archivio Kubrick has posted, watch, watch this space. Dear English-speaking friends, watch this space. I guess they're going to announce the book in English soon. That one I definitely want to get my hands on. I expect it will be a good read. Yeah, between the two of them, I'm sure they got some good stuff. I always am completely content when I'm in Kubrick's universe. I'm in good hands. <laughs> Something good is always going to happen. Totally. Yes. Totally. All right, well, I guess on that note... Thank you for the music. The songs I'm singing. Thanks for, Thanks for all, all the, the joy, joy we're bringing. Who can live without it? I ask in all honesty, what would life be without a song or a dance? What are we? So I say thank you for the music, for giving it. To me. That's such a beautiful... I don't care. I love punk rock, and I love ABBA too. Fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care. Right. Oh, good stuff, guys. Good, good stuff. All right, Stephen, go make your magic. Yeah. Madness. Thank you, guys. You best. You guys did great, as always. Well done. Tati bye, fellas. Okay, cheers. Go get some rest. Bye. Bye. See you in cyberspace. Quit. perspective makes Stephen look very small. Very tiny. <laughs> this forced perspective makes Stephen look very small.
something dick 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 mm. dick dutton dick dale what is dick dale dick nick hat dick hat yeah no 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 nick nick it was yeah i definitely know that asshole didn't you say he plays at that uh dodgy club downtown yeah yeah that's the guy isn't it what is it the the sayonara club the uh, uh, the Sonata Sonata yes the, the Hyundai yes. the Hyundai Sonata 
Yeah, well, I bet it's about six months since we were down there. Yeah. But last time I was in the neighborhood, I had to go to that uh, that really weird costume shop. Oh, Millich. Yeah, Millich. Weird, weird all that fellow. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're enjoying yourselves. The band's going to take a short break now, and we'll be back in ten minutes. Thank you. And I went to uh, the Hyundai Sonata Club, and uh, I had to take a cab, even though they're right next door to each other. It's weird. Mm. It's a small town, really, isn't it? It is. It's only, you know, like about a block or so. Yeah. Really tiny. Anyway, I was meaning to ask you, who invited you to this party? Oh, nobody. I don't need an invitation. You don't know how to get into these things? No. Just show them how big your cock is at the door. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to work out how I got in here. It's easy. You showed them how big your cock is at the door. (laughs) And then Phil let you in. Who Phil McAvitt? Phil McCracken. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. <coughs> went down the wrong hole. <coughs> you okay? Take it. Take your turn. That went down the wrong hole. Ooh. I know what that's like. Catch your wind. Take your time. <coughs> mm. uh, I need another drink. I don't know about you. <clears throat> yeah. You know what? Booze is never the answer, though. Booze is the question. Yes mm. is the answer. <laughs> so do you know Ziegler? Uh, I don't want to. Dude's a and creeper. You see the uh, the brunette over there? Mm. Ooh, yeah. What's her name? Mandy. Mandy. Yes. Oh, Mandy. You came and you gave without taking. Mm. <laughs> you gonna go after that then? Mm. Looks like she's headed upstairs. I think one of us better go find out what she's up to. Go on, then. No. I'm a brother. This one's you, bro. Right, so I think I'm going to uh, make my way across the uh, across the dance floor and try my luck with the pianist. I beg your pardon? <laughs> oh, oh, pianist. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, we're asking everyone who enjoys our shows to please give it a rating and or a review We make this show and bring it to you out of nothing but love for Stanley Kubrick and his unfailingly passionate fans. We do it on our own time, and we do it on our own dime. So, pretty please, be passionate enough to just take a moment and share your rating or review of Kubrick's universe. We care very much about bringing this show to you, doing it right, and doing justice to the legacy of our favorite filmmaker in this brave new digital world. And your support means we can keep going, keep new content, interviews, and episodes coming. It really does matter. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? 
Can you Please take a minute to just say, you dig it. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along.